Welcome, everybody, to Books with Cooks, a podcast for bookies and foodies. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Alex. And we're two cousins who are also best friends who love to read. Yeah. And I love to cook. And I cook to survive. We'll be reviewing, analyzing, sometimes overanalyzing, and discussing the books we're currently reading, as well as new and old recipes from our kitchen to yours. By the way, we're real people with real families. So you may hear cats, dogs, birds, babies, and husbands. So enjoy that bonus material. Now let's get booking and have a tasty chat. listeners welcome to our first bonus episode we'll be releasing new bonus episodes each month in addition to our other content so be on the lookout for future episodes as well this month we're reviewing sarah j mass's a court of thorns and roses the first novel in the akatar series or as my parents call it the avatar series We would also like to remind our listeners that if you're enjoying our content, we'd be extremely grateful if you would leave us a positive review on Spotify, Apple, or the streaming service you use. We would also really appreciate it if you could spread the word by telling friends and family or book lovers that you know about the podcast. Thank you so much to all our listeners. We really do appreciate you. All right. So stay tuned for our thoughts on the novel. But first, what are we snacking on today? (laughs) Some popcorn kernels. (laughs) Well, funny you ask. <laughs> well, I'm gonna let you guess what I'm drinking, but okay, I uh, I do free Red Bull. Oh my God, you're so good! It is, <laughs> it is, it's amazing. I also have Smart Food, the white cheddar popcorn. Nice. Yeah, I know. I took a little tiny handful uh, before we started this, and now I have a kernel that's just living in my face. <laughs> so bear with me over here. But <laughs> what are you snacking on? I have grapes again, and I did pull out the those pretzel things that I was eating the other day, the honey mustard and onion, but mm. I don't know. Not right now. I'm not too hungry, so we'll see. But I, I figured we're going to be at this for a little bit and I probably will get hungry at some point. So I wanted to have my snacks on, on deck. Plus I have my All coffee. All snacks on deck. All snacks on deck. And I kind do have my, today. it's an iced coffee with the amaretta syrup. And that's all. Some oatmeal. I got it. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I'm free. All right. <laughs> so what'd you eat for dinner last night? Last night I made chicken. I seasoned it with just like the usual garlic, onion, some ginger, pepper, stuff like that. And then I actually threw a little bit of shredded Parmesan cheese on top of it. And I made potatoes, like roasted potatoes. I seasoned them with some olive oil and garlic, onion, some parsley, and again, a little bit of the Parmesan. And I roasted those. I actually cut them thin. So kind of like almost like potato chip style. So they came out like a little crispy, but soft in the middle. They were really good. And I I actually meant to saute them, but I ended up kind of steaming them (laughs) because of the pot I used. But I made broccoli with like some soy sauce and then some ginger and garlic and that came out I actually usually I don't like it when it's too steamed they kind of come out soft and weird but it was actually pretty good I used a smidge a smidge yeah 
Um, <laughs> but I did use a smidge too much soy sauce. Uh, so that it, it was a little overpowering. Uh, I got distracted while I was pouring it out. And then I, I turned my head for like a, a couple seconds to like, look at the dogs. And when I turned back, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I was <laughs> nice. so pouring it. <laughs> nice. Um, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> but it came out, I mean, overall it was good. It was just a little too much, a little too salty from the soy sauce, you know? Yeah. But tonight I do not have to cook because Rob called me before and he's going to be late at work today. And he was like, I'll just grab something on the way home. I'm sure I'll be in traffic. I was like, all right, no problem. I'm not cooking anyway because I'm defrosting chicken and it won't be ready in time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. How about yeah. you? Uh, last night we did not cook. I didn't cook. I We got sandwiches. Nice. Sandwiches. Sandwiches. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and they were pretty good. I actually, um, had them add avocado onto my sandwich and it was mm, so yummy. Nice. So, um, yeah, when I used to eat chicken, I used to love getting chicken, fresh mutts and, you know, roasted peppers or whatever else in there. But I would, mm. I like to have uh, avocado in there. I feel like it just yeah. gave it like such a good flavor. Yeah. So last night I was feeling that sandwich, but minus the chicken because right. I don't eat chicken anymore. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, uh, let's just try it. And it happened to be really good. Yeah. So okay. I think I'm going to do that again. I liked it. I actually saw a video on TikTok. It might have been yesterday or the day before. And this girl was showing how to make pasta out of avocado. So you basically like Ooh. mash it up. Yeah, from what I, I don't remember the exact steps, but I know she basically smashed up only half an avocado, added some flour and some other stuff. And then she made it into kind of like um, or, or cheddar or cheddar. How do you pronounce that word? I don't know. But that I'm kind of sure. pasta. And it looked so good. I was like, I kind of want to try this as like a mm. healthy. Yeah, like a healthy alternative for I pasta. Mean, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely make that. That sounds really good. Yeah. I love avocado anyway, so you don't have to convince me. I know, right? <laughs> uh, do you remember those avocado fries or whatever they were? Those fried avocados that we got that time we went to dinner for my birthday? That, yes, they um, were so like, good. It was like that Cajun place. Yeah, yes. they're, yeah, those are so good. I think about them often. <laughs> <laughs> Because who heard of something like that? Fried avocados. They were so good. Yeah, they were really good. They had good. some kind of yummy dip too to go with it. Yeah, I don't, I was just thinking about that actually. I don't remember what kind of dip it was. It wasn't, was it a ranch type or it was something different? Was it more? It might like have been occasion? like a zesty. Yeah. It was like a zesty type of dip. Yeah. I mean, I would go back there and get those. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny too, because everybody loves avocado in my house. But the baby loves it. I love it. Doug loves it. Mm -hmm. My mother hates it, by the way. <laughs> I remember having that conversation like with her. And I was like, how do you not? It's so tasty. I know. She's like, I don't like the texture. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, it's just, it, it's a good texture. <laughs> I know. It doesn't really. What is the texture? Is my I don't question. Know. <laughs> it's just creamy. <laughs> I don't know. But like, it elevates your meal, like your snack. So if I'm having like, I used to like, like cream you know i love my cream cheese mm -hmm. so if i'm having like cream cheese on toast or cream cheese on crackers you put a layer of avocado like mashed avocado on it mm -hmm. and then you put like that that seasoning you know the everything bagel seasoning yeah. it's like the best snack ever yeah it just elevates it for no reason and it makes it healthier Avocado is really good for you too. I, I read an article once and it said that if you have an avocado for breakfast, it will lower your blood pressure throughout the day. And it also wow. helps to stabilize for diabetics like me. It'll help to stabilize your blood sugars throughout the day. That's so amazing. That it's good to have them early in the day too, because it has the, the added health benefits. I yeah. mean, again, no need to convince me. I'll have it. I know. <laughs> True. So, <laughs> But I would also have breakfast foods all day long. <laughs> yeah. 
Breakfast foods are my favorite. Most of the time, I don't even eat breakfast, honestly. I just kind of start eating around like 1230 or 1, and I just skip straight to lunch. (laughs) Because you're not a morning person. Yeah. I wake up. Press fast forward like a sim, like the Sims. Yeah. Just press fast forward on the morning. You would do that. (laughs) I would. I literally, I wake up, I'm so cranky in the morning that I'm not even hungry. I don't even have an appetite until the afternoon. (laughs) A lot of people do that. Yeah, a lot of people get like that. I have no choice because my three-year-old's like, hi, mommy, good morning. I'm hungry. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I got to get up. doesn't matter if it's 6 a.m. He yeah. needs his his numbs right there and then. <laughs> but do you do you eat every time he does or? No, I'll, I'll have my coffee though. Okay. I yeah. well, I need my coffees to function. Yeah. I need my caffeines. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'll have my coffee. But it'll take me a couple hours usually before I eat. Yeah. Because uh, he has me sometimes. The other day was five thirty a.m. I was yeah. like, who even? It's dark out, man. <laughs> I was like, go back to bed. <laughs> So yeah, if anybody heard our announcement, by the way, the other day about TikTok, yeah, that was a nice test run we did. (laughs) (laughs) Our TikTok uh, fiasco. Woes Woes is a better word. It wasn't really a fiasco. It was just more of an aggravation than anything. (laughs) We were all prepared. Uh, We put a lot of thought into it. We were preparing for it since the day before too. We had the whole thing planned. And then when we actually tried to execute, actually, no, I was like, let's, let's do some kind of a a test run first. So we, Mm -hmm. we met together first. We went live just to test it out. Uh, And that was great because some of, some people actually came and visited us, which was nice. I know. Uh, But we, we couldn't figure out how to do some kind of split screen so that it was two of us. And I was like, I'm all alone out here. What's going on? I can't do this. I'm in the dark here. I'm in the dark here. So yeah, it, it just didn't work out. We had to end it really early, really quick because uh, we couldn't split the screen. We found out that our other names also have to have a certain amount of following. So we're building up our following now and we'll be back yeah. to be continued. Yeah, But it was a fun test run, I guess. A learning yeah. process. It definitely was. And yeah, hopefully- I can't- I, I Can't think we'll be, yeah, we should be there soon. Uh, so we should be able to get up and be live pretty, pretty soon in the near future. So yeah. stay tuned for I another know. announcement. And hopefully this time <laughs> it'll actually be true. <laughs> yeah, I know. April falls. Yeah. April, April falls. April falls. Wow. <laughs> April, technically, yeah. Uh, April falls instead of April fools. But, yeah. you know, April fools in September. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we were being know. punked by TikTok. <laughs> I, basically, they were like, wait, how old are you two? Yeah. yeah technology no more <laughs> old people old people go back to school um <laughs> tiktok school uh but speaking of following up on things so in our last episode or, or at least recently we discussed the bonus chapter for divine rivals and we found it we found it on reddit it's just photos of the chapter it's called collision and i read it So I figured if anybody was interested and you don't feel like reading it through photos on Reddit, like I did, I will summarize it for you. And essentially all you need to know is that it was the scene from the book where Iris and Roman are reunited when the sirens are are going off and he's just arrived in the fields by the bed and breakfast. He's coming to join Iris to be a a war correspondent and it's told from Roman's perspective. So instead of uh, in, in the book, we see Iris seeing Roman through the window and then running out to warn him to get down. Instead, it's him, you know, and his thoughts on his journey there and 
and then as he's walking across the field and when she comes running to him and it was actually it, it was really cute it didn't it didn't impact the story much but it was sweet to read it was definitely it, just like the rest of the book it was cute and I did enjoy reading it and it was nice to see that same scene from a different perspective and it was, it was actually a little funny at one point too because he was like oh she's running to come see me she's so excited I'm here and then he like runs to her which we knew we had seen that from Iris's perspective and he but he was like so excited and then he was like oh something seems wrong and then she just like slams into him and he's like what's happening <laughs> get down <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so if yeah. anybody was curious about that, uh, we found it and we brought it to you here on yeah, Books I with Cooks. <laughs> Alex read it on Reddit. <laughs> I did read it on Reddit. <laughs> I have to check it out. I want to read it too. Maybe I'll do it later today. It sounds really cute. I like that it's from his perspective. Yeah. I wonder if she did that because now the next book is going to have double perspectives or something. That would be Maybe. interesting. I mean, it wasn't first uh, first person point of view. It was oh, written okay. still in third point uh yeah, third point of view, but it was just, you know, Roman was walking through and he was feeling nervous and, you know, um, yeah, that was all. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about today? Uh, no, except that, you know, the people in my house are trying to kill me because it's, <laughs> it's so hot in here. Uh, <laughs> other than that, no. I, I feel like I'm melting. <laughs> like the wicked witch <laughs> and uh i started out with two different shirts on top of this one and now i'm down to my last shirt so yeah i'm melting I, over here <laughs> it's hilarious because it's freezing in my house and i'm wearing a sweatshirt jess is wearing like this tank top and she's like you're lucky that i'm even wearing clothes at this point because i'm so hot <laughs> Seriously. All right. I'm about to cut my hair off. Go Pedro style from Napoleon Dynamite. It was too hot. What does he say? I don't remember. I tried to get some water, but it was too hot. Something Aww. like that. Vote for Pedro. Yeah, vote for Pedro. You still have to see Nebraska, the movie Nebraska, which is the uh, yeah. oldest pers older person's version of Napoleon Dynamite. That's I've never heard that movie described that way. So now I feel like I have to see it no matter what. Oh, you'll you'll appreciate it. For sure. yeah. It's really good. Yeah, it's cute. All right. All right. So let's get into some games. Yeah, let's just jump right in. Okay. Uh, so. All right. <laughs> I lost my bearings for a second. <laughs> She's so excited. So I excited. just came <laughs> Oh boy. I know. I'm, I'm starting to believe though that people, they just come to our podcast to hear us sing at this point because it's all we do. <laughs> we, every, I feel like every episode we're breaking out into song. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? They're not wrong because it's... <laughs> We will sing absolutely <laughs> everything. And I mean, everything will yeah. relate to a song for me. Everything. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, good. All right. I don't mind. We're going to keep singing. And uh, <laughs> I hope that you guys are, are listening and that future concerts that you'll come to us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> see us perform. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just bring your earmuffs for when it's my turn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stop. Oh, no, it's bad. No way. It's so funny, too, because when we announced, like, and stay tuned next Thursday for our potty episode, when we're recording, I'm like, oh, it sounded not too bad. It sounded okay. And then I listen to it when we're editing and stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's like nails on a chalk chalkboard. Oh, when stop. I, when I but that's because you're your, your own worst critic. You know, everybody is their own worst critic. Yeah. yeah you I know, guess. like when, when I listen to the podcast and I try to, uh, when I edit and stuff and I have to listen to both of us, like, I'll listen to you at a normal volume and then I'll have to, like, turn down the volume for myself. <laughs> 
Because I'm like, why am I screaming? Oh, like, stop. <laughs> why am I so loud? I don't know. <laughs> so you see, everybody's their own worst critic. Yeah. All right. All right. So you want to just jump right into this game? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we thought, because we're talking about Akatar today, and there happens to be a super awesome female villain in this book, who, dare I say, might be the most interesting character in the book. I don't know. But (laughs) it got us to thinking about how much we hate to love or love to hate, however you want to put it, uh, some female Disney villains. So we've compiled a little list of our favorite Disney villains that are female. So Sarah J. Moss not only writes great female main characters, but she also writes great female villains, as we just said. So (laughs) since this book is uh, loosely based on a Beauty and the Beast retelling, let's rate the female Disney villains from our favorite to least favorite or least favorite to favorite. I say let's go least least to favorite. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to start. At the starting from the bottom, now we're here. Um, we're gonna, <laughs> start, I was gonna go start at the very beginning. beginning. Again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna start from the bottom and make our way up to our favorite. There are a total of 10, so it worked out perfectly that we could exactly. find at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there's somebody that you uh you really like and that we don't mention, please let us know. But yeah, number 10, we'll start here, uh, is uh, not as popular. Uh, so she went right to number 10, but it's Madame Mim. <laughs> From the Sword and the Stone movie, it's a, a 1963 animated movie from Disney. She is sort of magical. She disappears. Uh, she, she reappears. Um, but she's not. She's tricky. <laughs> I will say that. She's tricky. Uh, but Alex had never seen yeah. uh, the Sword and the Stone. So obviously this went straight to 10. So yeah, if you do love know. Madame Mim, great. But sorry. She gets sorry. number 10. Sorry, but she Madame. made the list. You're so still top cool. 10. Yeah, that's right. So at number nine, we have, apparently this person has a name. Her name is Lady Tremaine. Who knew this? Never knew it, but it's the wicked stepmother from Cinderella. If you knew that her la- her name was Lady Tremaine, please let us know, because I'm pretty yeah, you sure get, like, some kind that's of an award. never said. Yeah. <laughs> no, never. They're, they're like, oh, uh, it's Lady Tremaine. I've never heard that before. I know. But I'm trying to think too, what's the movie? Is it ever after? Yes, with Angelica Houston. With Angelica Houston. Does she at any point say her name is Lady Lady Tremaine or anybody call her that? Not that I'm aware of. She does have a name in that movie though, and I don't remember what it is. I'll look it up in a minute and then I'll yeah, let you know. I'd like to know that because I did I have seen that movie multiple times and I've I've missed that if she if that's the case. So either way, everybody knows the wicked stepmother as the wicked stepmother, you know? She, she locks Cinderella in a closet. She's she's a bitch. Uh <laughs> Yeah, a jealous bitch. But we don't love to hate her, it, or at least I don't. I don't know about you. Her name was Baroness something. Oh, Baroness exactly. She was the Baroness something right. with an R. Yeah. All right. Um, but Baroness yeah, this makes me think of Sound of Music again. Yeah. Same. Same. I love Sound of Music. <laughs> well, all right. Now we're gonna get get to the good part. Uh, we're going to get to some better ones here. Obviously, Cinderella is very popular. It's very famous, but mm, I I feel like she doesn't deserve her name spoken, Lady Tremaine. I feel like she deserves (laughs) the title Wicked Stepmother because that's what she gets for being evil. But at number eight, we have Taka. If anybody has seen Moana, adorable movie, love that movie. Uh, Moana 
is uh, trying to replace the heart that was taken from Tafiti, which is a, a goddess, but she's an island. Uh, and um, when she has her heart removed, she turns into this lava monster. I think she's badass. I really like yeah, Taka. I do too. Uh, I thought that was so unique and different. And I really, really think they did a great job making her. I think she's super cool, but she's not super evil because once she figures out oh. that the heart belongs in her, she says, let her come to me, right? Yeah. And she comes to her and I love that scene that, that scene, song. that scene makes me cry every time I see it. Okay. Every time. Also, it's one of the most visually stunning scenes that yes. I've ever seen in a, in a Disney movie. I yes. love that I, scene. I love that song. She's like, I've crossed the horizon. Yes. I love that part. It's so good. So even though we do love her, this is, you know, we had to put her at number eight because there's some that we love to hate a little bit more. Yeah. Which brings us to number seven, the evil queen from Snow White. Oh, yeah. 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 Mira, Mira. Mira. <laughs> so here, there's some controversy there. Uh, so some people say, it, you, what is that called when uh, it's like the Mandela effect or something, yeah. right? She, yeah, so she doesn't some, actually say it. Some Mira, people Mira say Mira, Mira on the wall, which is that everybody remembers, mm -hmm. uh, but she doesn't really say that. She says something else. Yeah, I don't know uh, what she actually says. I think she just says um, who's the fairest or something along those lines, but I don't yeah. think she ever says Mira, Mira on the wall. How crazy is that? Because as far as I know, she said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very popular and I, I wonder if they used it as like a tagline maybe for the movie who knows what to sell mirrors <laughs> no, to sell the movie <laughs> Mirror, Actually, mirror on the wall that's not Come bad these mirrors so yeah. sell mirrors yeah <laughs> but you yeah she's, first, folks. she's at number seven <laughs> <She cooks mirrors. laughs> we really like her we don't have a problem with her we think she's a pretty cool villain i particularly liked Charlize theron's version in snow white and the huntsman mm -hmm. i thought she did a really good job and she seemed like not just evil but kind of crazy too it was like something a little not right about her in that movie and i really liked that that adaptation so I think the evil queen is awesome. I think it's a cool character, cool villain. Uh, I really do like the one that Julia Roberts is in that we mentioned. And that's ironically called Mira Mira, is it not? It is called Mira Mira. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what is this? They're just like messing with us, toying with us. And they're like, haha, but it's not really called that. Oh, she doesn't really say that. Yeah, I thought that one was good. That was a good rendition as well. So, yeah, I like. I, I never ones. saw that one. Um, yeah, it's good, and they had it was. She was the perfect. She was good at it, and uh, the Snow White was perfect. Uh, yeah, Lily Lil Collins. Lily Collins. I remember the poster and thinking she looked like the perfect Snow White. Exactly. When you picture Snow White, you picture her. Yeah. And there's a new one that's going to be coming out soon, but yeah, no yet. If that one's going to be good. We'll so see. for number I love Gal Gadot. Yes, Samezies. For number six, we have this is getting really good ones now. Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. Off with their heads off with their heads <laughs> oh my god remember they had to like paint the apples red on the or something they had to paint something red really or white something i think was it paint the apples red i don't what, remember but i know that mean? they had to paint something so the the people that the little cards that work for her in queen uh, of hearts they had to actually paint the trees like make sure that they paint the um whatever fruit was on the trees and oh. one of them was like dripping off and she sees it and she flipped out i don't uh, remember it's such, that. such an old school movie <laughs> yeah. i remember from when I was younger and I was just like, oh, don't mess, don't mess that up because she got really angry. <laughs> Uh, that's why you always made sure to paint it between the lines. You were like, oh no, I can't go outside the lines. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. 
I don't know. Uh, all I seriously, all <laughs> I know is I didn't really like uh, Alice in Wonderland growing up because it was like older, older. So it wasn't like my favorite. Uh, but I have a, a very big appreciation for it now mm. as an adult. Yeah, uh, I like the concept of it. And since we've gone down a few rabbit holes, uh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, so. I like Alice in Wonderland. I don't know. It was never my favorite, but it was never my least favorite. I always, I, as a kid, I liked it. I think I get it more as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> exactly that's why it yeah. makes more sense when you're older yeah all right so then at number five smack dab in the middle we have Ooh. cruella Deville. <laughs> cruella Deville. uh i hate her but she is funny she is a good villain um, she's great she's, she's great i don't like her at evil. all because obviously <laughs> i love puppies and she's so evil yeah uh but come on in the in the original when she's like anita darling, darling. like so good and she's like ah oh, no spots no spots little white rats um she's, she's great she's great she's a great villain yeah she's good she's definitely i like her hair i like the split hair her whole style her, her car is pretty cool what about yeah. the glenn close one i thought she did her pretty well i never saw it really yeah i remember oh. the poster like i remember seeing pictures of her from the film and she looked the part she looked a little crazy too but i oh, never she was great saw the movie. she was great and I like they changed it a little tiny bit. So instead of it being like Anita's friend from school, which really made no sense, because why yeah. would she ever be friends with her? Yeah, right. Anita's so nice. <laughs> Uh, instead, that was her boss. So Glenn Close, Cruella Deville, Cruella Deville is her boss. And she actually draws a coat that has that like... Makes more sense. Yeah, she's like a, a fashion designer and she draws the coat for her. And then she gets it in her head that it's going to be, you know, Dalmatians. She's like, don't you have a dog yeah. like this? You know, it's ugh, creepy. Ugh immediately yeah. quitting immediately <laughs> well <laughs> yeah because then she comes and steals her puppies i'm pretty sure she quit by the end of the movie so yeah <laughs> All right, so number four, we weren't sure about the name, but we do love her and we're going to sing. It's guaranteed right now. <laughs> uh, but it is the mother. Her name is Mother Gothel and she's the mother from Tangled, one of our favorites. We love yes. Tangled, love uh, which is a rendition, if you don't know, of Rapunzel. Yep. So mother <laughs> knows best. Best. Mother knows best. Listen to, Listen your, to mother. your mother. <laughs> love it. I love <laughs> that movie. I love that character. I love I love that song. I love all the songs in that movie. Yeah. She's so evil. I mean, if you don't know, she she literally kidnaps this girl when she's a baby out of her crib uh, and then uses her to because she has magical hair to make her look younger. So, you know, if if you know the old Rapunzel tale, then you get it. But she's so great. She keeps her locked in the tower and she's like, oh, no, I'm the bad guy. Like, she's yeah. just so good. <laughs> she's such a gaslighter. So good. I know it, she, she really the, the character. I mean, uh, the actress that they used to. to voice i really did well yeah She's i always great. thought who was it i thought it was susan sarandon is it not Dude, i susan? thought it was Cher at first I oh yeah we talked about this i mean it, it needed to be Cher. Mother the character knows looks best. Like... <laughs> listen to your mother listen to your mother um it needed to be Cher. it was a misstep on disney's part not the actress that plays her it did a great job. So applause to that person, to that woman. But um, oh, it was Donna Cher... Murphy. Who's Donna Murphy? Why does that sound familiar? Oh do you remember Center Stage? Yes. Do you remember the dance teacher that was kind of hard on? Uh, yes. Chloe Saldana. Yes. Her. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I didn't know she sang and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's I didn't exciting. Know that either. 
That is exciting. Okay. I like her. I mean, all right, so we'll, we'll let it slide. But if she couldn't mm-hmm. do the role, if something happened, then she got sick or she couldn't play it, it Sharon it was share. next in line. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Come on. It, I, I swear that. to God, if you if you look, if you don't Rapunzel. know who we're talking about, <laughs> if you don't know who we're talking about, please just on your phone or something, just pull up on Google Mother Gothel from Tangled and tell me that doesn't look like it should have been Cher. That's all. That's it. Uh, my girl Cher. <laughs> I would listen to Cher sing that soundtrack. I would listen to Cher sing anything. Uh, Cher needs to sing every soundtrack. I know, right? <laughs> it all comes back to Cher. Right? All right. So now we're, we've made it to our top three. Woo! All right. Let's, let's do it. We have at number three, Ursula from The Little Mermaid, one of Jess's all-time faves. Uh, because <laughs> she has the best villain Disney song, right? Uh, Poor unfortunate souls. <laughs> so sad, you know? Yeah. It's so good. I grew up on The Little Mermaid. I love The Little Mermaid. And I hated Ursula, obviously. But mm. you love to hate her. She's just so, so She's good. good. She's a really good villain. I really like her. She's evil in a different kind of way. She's more of like corrupt then uh, I guess she's pretty evil, but oh, she's an evil bitch. I, I, <laughs> she's in the top I, three. I really like her. Also, she's yeah. an octopus, which is awesome. Yeah, octopuses are really intelligent. She has those little electric eels as her pets, mm-hmm. and uh, when she takes them out later, or something happens to them, right? She's like my babies. My babies. <laughs> Uh, it's just so good. I, I, I really do like her and I love that song. I, I, I know it's a, a villain's song, but usually you don't have a song from a villain that you just love so much. Mm-hmm. And it's up there for me and one of my favorite like Disney musical songs. Yeah. So. It's a good one. I love Poor Unfortunate Souls. <laughs> Did you see the new one yet? No, not yet. I have to. I'll is watch it, it. Is it on uh, streaming on Disney? Okay. It is. I'll yeah, it just started it. streaming, I think, last week. Oh, all uh, right. Yeah, it's really good. You'll like it. Yeah, I've been yeah. wanting to see that. I've heard such good things about it. Yeah, Melissa McCarthy plays Ursula. She yeah. does such a good job, too. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. Nice. So, yeah, we love Ursula. <laughs> I mean, we hate her, but, you know. We hate to love her, and That's we right. love to hate her. <laughs> So number two is probably my all-time favorite, maybe. I don't know. She's just so awesome, different level of awesome. But it's Yzma from Yzma (laughs) from uh, Emperor's New Groove, which I know isn't like a more popular one, but when we were growing up, we loved it. Uh, But Emperor's New Groove, she is uh, like, I don't know, what was she? Like some kind of little witch that worked in the castle? She was kind of like an evil scientist, but yeah, I guess she had potions. (laughs) (laughs) she she has these potions in the castle and she's trying to get rid of the emperor so you know she poisons him but it's it's done in such a comical way it's so great and then she kind of takes over she becomes you know like the queen in his place or whatever while he's he's not at the (laughs) castle uh but it's just her expressions everything that she does and she has the best sidekick it's the guy that plays joe from family guy his voice is hilarious cronk yeah Yeah. and he he's like it's just so funny but my favorite line from oh, I speak, is... Oh, I speak squirrel. <laughs> my favorite line from uh, from Yzma is they have... She has like a bunch of levers that she pulls and she tries to pull one. So this way, you know, somebody would fall through a trap door. And she's like, pull the lever, Kronk! And Kronk pulls it. And then she comes in with like a... Like a I guess it went to like a, a water a swamp or something. She comes in with a, a crocodile attached to her and she's like, Ronda, why do we have that lever? <laughs> why so do we fun. have that lever? 
50s great yeah i love that movie is so good that movie is hilarious even at this age no matter how many times i've seen it i still laugh every time it's so funny the old man the groove the groove It's so good. It was such a great cast, too. Everybody did really well in it. I love it. It's fantastic. Wait, can we stop looking at the monkey and the bug and come back to me? Me? (laughs) All right, take it away, Alex. Who's number one? All right, at number one, we have, I wonder if anybody guessed it, but it is Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, so she gets number one because she's the goddamn coolest, okay? She, (laughs) as Jess has said in our other discussions, she turns into a dragon. She has really cool magic. She's also pretty evil, but she's just badass. She's just really cool. Honestly, I was never a big fan of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, I thought the movie was boring, but I loved Maleficent. (laughs) Because she's asleep the whole time? Yeah, I was like, what's going on? (laughs) Even as a kid, I was like, this is boring. I did like the colors though and the the little fairies they were cool. Yeah. But I don't really remember it. My girl. I just remember the song that she sings. But I don't remember yeah. the actual movie except Maleficent because she just stands out with her like hard face. Like She's got like this pointy face with the points on top. She's like black and purple colors. She is right, so like awesome. Old. Let me tell you, she's like- Her whole the, getup is cool. She's like a straight up like off the runway model, but as a villain, <laughs> okay? And then she gets turned into a dragon and she's just, she's just badass. Plus I feel like she was kind of justified. They were always trying to keep her out of stuff for no reason. They were just like, we don't like you. You don't get to come to this. I don't know uh, if that's because actually Because she turns accurate, into a but... dragon. So and they're like, we don't need her like wrecking the whole event and wrecking my house when she's at this event because she's going to go through the ceiling as a dragon. That's prejudiced. They didn't know if she was going to turn into a dragon. Prejudiced. <laughs> I'm team Maleficent, okay? <laughs> And she is super cool. She's definitely cool uh, to hate, to love. Uh, and I've never seen the movie with Angelina Jolie, but I want to. And I think that their their costuming, uh, the way they did her makeup and the costume was really cool as well. It was good. Yeah, I liked yeah. that movie. It's like a whole backstory on her, which was nice. I like that. Yeah. And she's yeah, kind of like the like, antihero too, which I love a good antihero. So. That's like the Joker. Did you see the Joker movie? I did. And? Eh. That's his backstory. I know. I know. You don't love when he was dancing on the stairs? No, no. I just, uh, I don't know. The movie I think, was depressing. Honestly, yeah. I think I only saw the movie once and I didn't want to watch it at the time because we watched it on like Thanksgiving Day or something like that. Oh. And it was like two and a half hours long. And I was like, I don't really want to sit here and watch this movie for the next two and a half hours. And we did anyway. And I just, I thought it was depressing. And I felt like they were trying to make him like mentally ill. But then I was like, this is kind of harmful to the mentally ill community that, you know, if you have a mental illness, then you're just going to go out and become a psycho killer psycho killer do you know that song all right anyway um (laughs) and that's just me on my high horse once again but i i don't know i just i i think at the time i wasn't in the right like headspace to be watching it and so the experience in general makes me not think of it fondly i mean listen i think he's joaquin phoenix is a very talented actor i think he's very skilled at what he does i think he played the role really well but the movie itself me and doug i don't remember if we went to see it in theaters i think so but we walked out and or whenever we seen it we were just like "Mm, it was depressing yeah you know i don't we didn't get the hype Mm -hmm. uh he was great the acting the acting was good i mean he's a he's good in everything he does he is a great actor but yeah it was a very depressing movie i think i, I think i almost cried in that too 
at one point. I felt bad really? for him. Yeah, he was I just like too, being bullied yeah. by everyone. I was like, oh. Yeah, wasn't was his so mom sad. awful too? I think his mom was bad to him or something. Or... His whole life was sad. It was like... It... He thought his dad was someone else that he wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. It was... It was a lot going on. Yeah. But uh, fun fact about Joaquin Phoenix, he changed his name to Joaquin. It used to be something else because I think all of his brothers and sisters and everybody had like a rain type of name yeah. or something. Uh, but he was in the movie Parenthood with okay. Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, that was him. Remember, he was Diane Weiss's son. Okay. The one that um, her daughter was dating Keanu Reeves. That should ring a bell. Uh, vaguely. I saw that movie a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. I just couldn't believe it. I was staring at him. I'm like, this is definitely a Phoenix kid. And it was him. <laughs> oh, wow. He had a different name. I think it was like Leaf or something. Oh, okay. And then I looked it up and he had changed his name legally from Leaf to Joaquin. So, yeah. In fact, interesting. He's been okay. he's good at his at his job because he's been acting for a long time. So I was always wondering about that too. I was like, how did we have like Rain, River, and Joaquin? <laughs> Wait, yeah, why not? He changed it. Why not stick with the Leaf. theme? But I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure his name was Leaf. That does sound familiar. I knew that there was a Leaf. I just thought it was another sibling. But if it was actually just him, then that just makes sense. Uh, yeah, good story. Yeah, okay. man. Uh, all right. Sorry, I was yeah, I trying think... to look it up real quick to see if it right. says his. I think his best role, though, was in Gladiator. He was so good in that. That movie is good. Yeah. I've liked him in pretty much everything he's done for the most part. I, I mean, I haven't seen every single one of his movies, but all the ones I have seen, I've I thought he did an excellent job. Oh. Yeah, he definitely puts himself in the roles. And that's yeah. it pays off. Yeah. Speaking of putting ourselves into things, you want to <laughs> jump right into this one? Let's sure. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, um, so <laughs> Alex is like, oh, right now? Oh. I forgot that I'm blue. Uh, abba dee, abba da. I'm blue. Da, da, dee, da, da, da. By the way, uh, I like the new song, the remix of that, so much better than the old one. You know which one I'm talking about? Yes. I'm, a I'm good. Night of my life. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Whatever it takes. So much better because it actually has real words and lyrics <laughs> where the other one doesn't. <laughs> the other one had real words. It was just the same words over and over again. And it was, I'm blue. <laughs> I live I in a blue house with a blue car. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's the classic, but, you know. But at the same time, it's like, remember, there was a lot of controversy over the lyrics. Everybody thought it was, if I was green, I would die. Yeah. But he doesn't say that. Yeah. It's like, abba do abba da. Yeah. Anyway, All right. <laughs> you guys really are getting a concert today. I know, so. right? Enjoy your bonus episode concert. (laughs) All right. So A Court of Thorns and Roses is a book that takes place in both the mortal realm and the realms of the fairies. So let's build our fantasy fairy world, Jess. If you were in Akatar, what court would you be in? So do we have to stick with the rules of Akatar or can we like branch out and make our own fantasy worlds? You can do whatever you want. It's your fairy fantasy world. Damn right. All right. (laughs) So (laughs) if I had to stick with the the laws of this book, obviously, I think I would be an autumn court girl because I love the fall. Love me some fall. Love the leaves. Love the colors. I think that would be beautiful. You know, my outfits would be like mustards and reds (laughs) and these pretty maroons and just fall colors yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if, if i'm building a fantasy world then i would have all the seasons which i know some somebody might be like but that's the world that you live in now has all seasons 
<laughs> but I mean, seasons on demand. So if I was like, oh, you know, I don't want it to be fall today. I want it to be a summer day. Then I could just like snap my fingers and it'll be a summer day. Or I need spring today and with flowers everywhere, snap my fingers, boom. So yeah, I would be a, a multi-realm girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, there would be waterfalls everywhere. There would be beautiful scenery, mountains, had definitely mountains, kind of like a mix of Montana, but fantasy. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Right? Like yeah. fairy tale Montana. So nice. Okay. Right? Yeah. What about you? So if I had to, I'm torn, I'm torn between the winter court because I do love the winter. And I do love the snow and all that and go ice skating. It'd be really pretty all the time. But I also really like the night court, not just because of the book, but also, I mean, I know like all of my backgrounds on my work computer and on my personal computer. Actually, if I pulled up like my browser right now, you'd see it's all like stars (laughs) and the night sky and shit. So I'm torn between the two of them. But Jess thinks that I belong in the winter court because I have my white eyelashes and my white eyebrow my white streak in my hair so she thinks that i would fit in perfectly and that it was made for me so i guess i'll go with winter court yes and how awesome you would look i told you uh if you were tilda swinton is it tilda swinton yeah yeah tilda swinton uh like gear so like you have like these like from from narnia if anybody's seen she plays the white witch and she has the coolest outfits like these long beautiful like light blue dresses that are shimmery and stuff with like the white robe Mm -hmm. and stuff i could see you like just chilling like that okay plus you could have some kind of snow powers you know let it go yeah. you know what i mean that's let it true snow. <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't mind having some elsa like you know powers with the snow and ice and shit oh That'd my god cool. so you would be like an ice queen i would 100 percent be an ice queen yeah yeah right i know is there any i just need not to go to frozen for a second but like is there anybody out there that's like oh i wouldn't want to be elsa like you'd want to be anna some little kids are afraid of elsa because they don't Why? really well they don't really understand the movie if they're too young and they because they think she's the villain because she has these like scary powers and they think that she hurts people uh so mm. that could well in the in the original because i have all i have a, a big book of hans christian anderson's work um and it's all illustrated pages it's really nice i'll show you one day mm, yeah and, and she was if you read the original story she was bad really she wasn't good yeah Interesting. uh so yeah they were gonna actually i seen the making of frozen because i'm that nerd and <laughs> uh they were saying that there were a couple of scenes they cut out that she was mm. going to do things that would have been a little more villainous mm. uh, but they decided to come away from that and make it more about the sisters which i liked her story is kind of dark though even in in the sequel i remember i watched that and i i, I was kind of like wow this is a little dark for like young kids she basically goes into like the underworld and spends time with spirits and then she's like queen of the spirit world by the end oh in the like, second one yes, yeah, in a the little sec- bit. yeah in the sequel i loved the sequel i thought it was good yeah no, i it, loved it, that it is part good. when she goes down there with the spirits and everything i thought that was really beautiful it is it's well it's definitely beautifully done and it's i really enjoyed it and i like the songs but i think for for little kids uh, it's a little dark no yes i agree okay but as an adult that scene when she's singing and then she sees her mom and i was yeah. hysterical crying in the movie theater <laughs> i had my mother on one side and i had my mother-in-law on the other side and i was pregnant with the baby yeah, yeah. and of course i had like pregnancy emotions but i was hysterical i was like this is beautiful it's her mom <laughs> i had feelings yeah. <laughs> so now now that's interesting if she is the villain if we should have added her to our female villain list i don't else get a no a shout out in this. i don't Both. think she is the villain i just think like little kids that don't really get the story they are a little scared of her and think she is the villain but i don't mm. 
But I, I mean, little kids also typically maybe they'll watch like the first 30 minutes and then, you know, they lose their attention span. So they're only seeing her when she's bad, pretty much, you know? Well, it Not sounds bad, to me but, like, you know, scared. It sounds to me like they need to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm sure it's not every kid either. I just I know um, I, I well, one of my consumers, actually, she's not a kid, but she had well, the intelligence of a child and she was scared of Elsa was not so much scared, but she was like, oh, she's the bad lady. And we had like a conversation about it. And then there was another little girl that I was talking to a friend's kid. And she was like, oh, but Elsa's bad. I was like, well, she's not bad. She's just scared. And she was like, oh, she's scared. She just like didn't get it, you know, because they, they, she was too little to really understand uh, what was going yeah. on mentally yeah they just see her like you know with the ice towards anna and running away into the mountains like that's what they see well i mean she does freeze her sister's heart she does freeze her sister's heart. not on purpose but yeah if she did it on purpose then i would say all right that's a villain but she just couldn't control it yeah and nobody don't feel don't let it show oh poor elsa I I love that movie as you guys can tell yeah Okay, so before we discuss the book, let's go over the reviews for A Court of Thorns and Roses. We picked our favorite good and bad reviews in case anyone is on the fence about reading it. Remember, you can find our full reviews on Goodreads. A Court of Thorns and Roses currently has an overall rating of 4.2 out of 5 on Goodreads with a publication date of May 5th, 2015. So let's do the bad reviews first. Alex, you want to go first? All right. Yeah. So I saw two that I really thought were funny and I couldn't decide. So I'm going to read them both. They're super short. The first one said, I'm a second away from dousing myself in gasoline and lighting myself on fire just so I never have to look at this book again. Jesus. Okay. (laughs) I know. That's intense. It's dramatic. Yeah. And then the second one is, this is it. This is the stupidest book I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. All right. Those are, I could see why you couldn't decide because they're both amazing. All right. So I found a one star as well. <clears throat> this person was not a fan. Uh, I honestly don't think I've hated a book more in my entire life. Uh, I like fantasy and I knew there would be a little cheese with the romance aspect. But with how much this book was recommended to me, nothing could prepare me for how many times I'd be rolling my eyes. Next, the love story was barf times a million. Uh <laughs> Oh my god. I literally could not understand where this love was coming from. I was so disappointed in the world's building and plot of this story. It had so much potential, but just not enough. Oh, and the riddle answer, OMG, I threw up in my mouth a little with how cheesy that was. Okay. Nice. Okay. Not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> Barf times a million killed yeah. me. <laughs> Oh. All right, so let's move on to the good reviews. All right. So, Alex, you got a five star? Yeah, so I have a five star. This person said, I'm speechless. What am I supposed to say after this? Am I supposed to write a coherent review with vital points as to why this book, all caps, was fucking amazing? I can't even talk right now. I'm speechless. I want the second book in my hands, but my order still hasn't come. I'm ready to go to fucking England myself and purchase it. Kids, I'm literally dying here. so intense that is officially my favorite (laughs) review that we've ever read on here that is amazing wow kids i'm literally dying (laughs) 
Oh my God. <laughs> wow. All right. So Nicole says, I couldn't put it down. I, I heard about this series from a friend because she knows how much I love books in the series, but this book, this book, <laughs> I found myself spending every spare second I had of my day to read this. It's so interesting and has the perfect amount of fiction, love, interest, and sense. I love the main character and the bond she forms with all the other characters. Can't wait to binge the whole series. Ooh, okay. Before we get started, we want to include some trigger warnings. This book and the following discussion will include topics of violence, murder, death, and sexual content. So please be aware of that before you proceed. We also want you to be aware that there will be cursing and spoilers in this episode. So if that's something you're sensitive to, or if you haven't read the book yet, you may want to skip this episode for now and come back to it in the future. Okay, so let's talk about why we chose this book to do a bonus episode on. So Alex has already read the entire series and insisted that I need to read it. I also personally love retellings, especially when it has a modern feminist, might I add, twist. Uh, a Thousand and One Nights, for example, by Hanan Al-Sheikh is one of my favorite books and is a retelling of Arabian Nights, but more in a uh, modern Amer uh, modern female-friendly version. So yeah, I need to read that. I'm excited. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to chat with you about that so maybe in the future yeah definitely so i i did read the first two novels back in 2017 after i had read some other beauty and the beast retellings and for some reason i just needed more uh, i had read cruel beauty crimson bounds uprooted beastly heart's blood rose daughter and i just needed more beauty and the beast i don't know i was going through something wow. apparently in 2017 <laughs> I mean, we do love Beauty and the Beast, the movie, so I, I get I do. it. It's my favorite, but I just, That's a, I, I, I must have been going through something at this time. So that's I, dedication. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the time, only the first two books were published. I had to patiently uh, wait for more books, and I'm still waiting for more. Oh, what? What? what did you, I say? You had to wait. You said I had. I had to wait. Oh, uh, so I at the time, <laughs> at the time, only the first two books were published, and I had to patiently wait for the remaining books, and I'm still waiting for more. Uh, the second book in the series is one of my favorites of all time, and I needed someone in my life to discuss this series with. So. I needed Jess to read it with me. <laughs> yeah, I am. All right. <laughs> I did it. Yay. Okay, so the book we read this month is A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss, a New York Times bestselling fantasy novelist. Sarah grew up in Manhattan and developed a love of reading, writing, and storytelling early in life. So Sarah attended Hamilton College, where she studied creative writing and religious studies. She graduated magna cum laude in 2008, married her husband Josh in 2010, and published her first novel, Throne of Glass, in 2012, a book she started writing at 16 years old. Today, Sarah lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and two children, and is the author of 15 novels and counting. As of 2022, she sold over 12 million copies of her books, and they have been translated into 37 languages. Her next novel, House of Flame and Shadow, in her Crescent City series, will be released on January 30th of 2024. Yeah. Can't wait for that. And we will be reviewing it. Yep. <laughs> so A Court of Thorns and Roses is the first in the Aquatar fantasy series by Sarah J. Maas. The story starts off as a retelling of the classic fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast. It follows Feyre, a 19-year-old mortal woman who is forced to hunt to ensure her family's survival. One winter morning, she kills a large wolf in the woods that separates her village from the fairy lands of Prithian. Shortly after, a beast-like creature comes to demand retribution for the murder of his comrade. The fairy, disguised as the wolf, 
that Feyre slaughtered. Feyre is brought as a captive, captive into the fairy lands where she discovers that the beast is actually Tamlin, a fairy and High Lord of the Spring Court. As Feyre learns more about the fairies, she begins to develop an understanding of their culture and ultimately falls in love. However, an ancient threat looms over the Spring Court and the courts within Prithian. Feyre is their only hope. She must find a way to defeat the threat or doom Prithian forever. So let's get into our discussion. Okay. A Court of Thorns and Roses, aka Akatar, is loosely based on the plot of the fairy tale The Beauty and the Beast. So do you find the familiar do you find the familiarity with the classic to be helpful in getting into the story? And do you generally like retellings or do you prefer the classics to stay in their original form? I love retellings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned earlier in the why we chose this book that prior to reading A Court of Thorns and Roses, I had basically gone through every single Beauty and the Beast <laughs> retelling that I could get my hands on. Beauty and the Beast is always my favorite Disney movie. It's still my favorite Disney movie. I love it. And so I do. I favorite too, yeah. Yeah, I really like retellings. There's also a whole series by, uh, I believe her name is Melissa or Marissa Meyer. And it's the Cinder Seer, the Lunar Chronicles. And it's all different retellings. There's Cinderella, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, and Rapunzel, actually. Oh. And those were really good. I just love them. I, I think it's fun to take an old tried and true story and then change it up either in a fantasy way or in a modern way. I just, I, I, I like it. I do find it a little comforting. I like the familiarity. Um, it definitely helps getting into a story because you're already familiar with the, the essence of the, the tale. <laughs> <laughs> the essence uh so yeah 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 uh did you ever watch i think we discussed this but once upon a time right yes yeah loved I really, like the first two seasons <laughs> yeah i i liked how they did this with bell and rasputin right is that his name rasputin mm -hmm. no uh rumpelstiltskin rumpelstiltskin right yeah i like how they combined them two together and he was the beast like i thought that was cool yeah, that, uh, that don't too. go don't go by us on that show because you could watch the first three seasons and then just stop because it gets yeah. really bad but it was really good at first yeah started out great and then it got a little it weird did. it was a great concept yeah but yeah. i think there was like 30 episodes or 40 episodes a season so after a while i was just like all right where are we yeah. going now <laughs> yeah it was too long and yeah they just it just went it just went in a weird direction it was too serious at times too it needed like to be a little bit more lighthearted at times i thought it was too like, much right, yeah yeah like you're taking yourself a little too seriously you're <laughs> you know it's about fairy tales like just have some fun with it <laughs> exactly so i mean i really do i like you I, I really do like retellings and growing up beauty and the beast was my favorite as well mm -hmm. until uh i seen the movie it's been replaced uh by wally i love wally okay i love you know, wally so, so much yeah. yeah and you want to talk about crying i always cry um mm. with wally for some reason but yeah we'll talk about that another day okay. but i do <laughs> i do like retellings uh, i mentioned briefly uh earlier that i love uh the new modernized tale of uh, arabian nights how mm -hmm. uh, hanan al-sheikh wrote uh, a modernized you know putting female in a better light uh 1001 nights so i really do like retellings overall uh there's a lot of retellings too that are on my tbr that are like you know something having to do with uh pride and prejudice and yeah 
you know, like the, what happens to the Darcy's after. And uh, mm-hmm. I know they're going to be terrible, but I want to read them anyway. Uh, and Prejudice and Zombies, right? Isn't no, that, that, that I don't want to read. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm so over zombies ever since uh, when we used to watch The Walking Dead and then just oh. you know, it took, a, took a turn and I was like, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah, you watched that just, longer than I did too. I, I cut out at some point. I was like, I'm done with this show. I'm sick of that. Yeah. Well, I started getting, uh, you know, I don't know anybody out there who watches it. Um, if if you're watching it and you haven't seen this part, like just skip this part right now. But <laughs> the part that happens, uh, you know, where they kill off, I don't even remember his name anymore. Was it Ben? No, it's not Ben. Glenn? Glenn, yes, close. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> after that scene, I was like, I can't watch this anymore. I hate this show. <laughs> oh, that's when I stopped too. Not so much because they killed him, but just because I hated the way that the, I mean, this is completely off topic, but it is <laughs> the, the way, the, the way that they filmed that show was so frustrating because they would have a cliffhanger and then they wouldn't get back to it for like three episodes and they wouldn't be filling those three episodes with interesting, fun things. It would just be boring filler shit and then they yeah. finally get to the cliffhanger and then there would be another and it's just like over and over again and i was like you're just yeah. this is bad storytelling you guys suck. it wasn't it wasn't because of glenn dying or the way that he was killed because i really thought negan was a cool character mm-hmm. uh he was a cool villain but it, it just got dumb after a while and i was just like how much of this can i watch it's like yeah. the same thing over and over again they get themselves out of it and then they get themselves in it again and i was just like yeah. over it so i think it turned me off to zombies for the rest of my life but <laughs> that's fair that's a whole nother issue yeah <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that's a me problem. Uh, so yeah, I I do. Uh, of course, I'll always prefer classics in their original form because they're the classics. But uh, I did uh, text you when I realized I, I hadn't realized that this was going to be a Beauty and the Beast retelling, and I was like, uh, "This is Beauty and the Beast." Uh, and you were like, "Yes, yes, yes. It's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast." I was like, "Oh, okay." Because at first I was angry. I was like, "She stole this." <laughs> And you were like, no, 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 it is. I'm like, but it doesn't say it. Like, you know, at least on, oh, I don't, I don't know where it is right now, but at least on my thousand and one nights, it says a retelling, you know? Yeah. This one didn't say that. So I was was tricked. You're right. It doesn't say that. And actually even Throne of Glass is supposedly loosely based on Cinderella, like a retelling of that, even though I didn't get that vibe at all. Personally, this one seemed much more true to the dynamics of, uh, I see it says a retelling. See, it says a retelling uh this one at least you know i I think it's because this one is so similar to beauty and the beast that you don't need to have it there but it it used to be i mean when i read it in 2017 like that's how it was marketed like that's how i that's how i found it so i don't know if it's just because it's taken on its own form and its own life now that they don't include that but i don't know (laughs) it was funny though to get that text from you and i was like yeah i told you this and you were like you didn't (laughs) i was like oh i thought i did sorry (laughs) Yeah, and you didn't warn me about the first two chapters, but we'll get to that later. But also, does, do the other books, are they retellings of other fairy tales too or no? No, I do think okay. that Akamath is kind of, ha- kind of has like Hades and Persephone vibes to it, but it's not really, you know. You had said that. I think yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, it's not quite the same, but it has, once you read it, you'll you'll probably see what I mean. Okay. So, all right. So in the novel, Favor's wants and desires are often thwarted by her responsibilities. She has to hunt, she has to collect firewood, etc. She identifies early on that her ideal life would be one in which her sisters are married off and that she and her father have enough money and food so that she can spend time painting. What do you think this says about her character? And why do you think historically people turn to all kinds of art, writing, music, painting, etc., when they're facing hardship? And what is the significance of Favor's? Uh, 
of Feyre being an artist in the story. So for those of you who aren't going to read this or haven't read it yet, um, Feyre makes her mother a promise. Her mother dies. She makes her mother a promise that she's going to protect her sisters and father. Her father's injured. So she goes out. She gets them the food. She has to hunt in order to do that. And she has to face hardship really early on and become an adult quicker based on these needs that she has to do and provide for her family. Uh, so I, I could see that her ideal life being, oh, I don't have to provide for as many mouths to feed, you know, it would be easier for her because she doesn't have to work as hard to do that. Yeah. So, and I could see painting just being just like books or any other hobby that you have. It's an escape. You know, she, she wants to escape from the realities of her life and she wants to be able to do things that she wants to do rather than what she has to do. Yeah. So I think the significance of her being an artist is just to show that she does, you know, she maybe is made for a different world. Mm. Uh, an escape from her reality, you know, and I think we see that uh, come out of the book, yeah. but she maybe is made for a different place and she's able to paint that place if she wants to, she can create that world yeah. to avoid the world that she's, you know, the current hardships that she's facing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, Favorite has not had an easy life. And I think that she always had a a love of painting and a desire to paint. I actually really like throughout the book, it's kind of scattered throughout the entire book where she describes life in colors. So as she is, you know, walking through her village, she'll note the color of the sunshine that's coming through. She'll, when she's in the fairy realm, she's amazed by the different colors of, you know, the grass and just how much more vibrant it is. And she even will say, you know, uh, later on in the book, when she is removed from a lot of joy in her life, that there's a lack of color and that she doesn't uh, give a lot of attention to that anymore. There's no more space for all the colors. And I really like that. I think it, it shows that Feyre is maybe a dreamer. You know, she's somebody that, yes, she likes to escape. It helps her to cope with her life and maybe to process her life as well. So later on when she's at the manor with Tamlin and she's painting all of her paintings from her mortal life and, you know, her, her life with her family, she is painting the woods where she used to hunt and she's painting, you know, the hay where her and Isaac used to, you know, get down and dirty and just all of these different moments of her life and she's putting them onto a canvas. And I think that it helps her to cope with the experiences she's had and it helps her to process it. I think that art therapy is, a, a real thing. And I think that she uses it in that way. But I also think that she just naturally sees the world from an artist's point of view. And unfortunately, she could never pursue that dream because she did have these real life responsibilities that unfortunately were really just kind of thrust upon her early in life. So I do think that she's a dreamer and that that comes out in her painting and in the way that she views the world. Um, and then, yeah, I think I answered all the questions. Sorry, I thought yeah, I missed one. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I missed one. I'm like off no. my game today. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. I agree with you. And I think uh, it's symbolic. You know, when you think of like your human world and your responsibilities, everything seems black and white, less colorful, less attractive, <laughs> because you got to think about reality. And then, you know, obviously your dream world would be more vivid. It would be, you know, a fantasy world, like it's something that you're not living through, but you wish that you could. It's exactly like a dream. So I think that's a good, a good symbolism. Yes. I, I, I agree with you. And not to always bring things back to mental health. I do kind of view the world through this lens a lot of times, but I do think throughout the novel, we see when Feyre is more depressed and just not happy, things are much more bland and she's not thinking in terms of colors and things like that. 
And then when she is experiencing joy, everything is more colorful. Her paintings are more colorful and she views life in a more colorful way. And I think that that was intentional on the part of Sarah J. Moss, SJM, because I think it does represent her mental state as well. Yeah, that's a good observation too. I didn't even think of that. That's that's great. It makes it really interesting too, the whole concept and, and reading it. Yeah. So as we mentioned, uh, Farah has to, from an early age, she has to provide food for her family. So she needs to go hunt to do that. So while she is hunting for food, she happens to come upon a large wolf in the woods. She speculates that the wolf could be a fairy as she detects maybe intelligence behind his its eyes and further observes that the wolf seemingly allows her to kill it. So she does uh, kill the wolf in the woods. And this serves as a catalyst for the rest of the story as she's taken then to Prithian which is the fairy realm uh, as a debt for killing the wolf that was in fact a fairy so what do you think about Pharaoh's decision to kill this wolf despite thinking that it might be a fairy yeah I when I first read this I was kind of conflicted about this because in my head I was like if you do think it's a fairy why would you kill it but at the same time she does kind of explain that it's safer for her and her family to kill a fairy because what they believe about the fairies and stories that have been told and to some extent it is true is that these fairies will come across the you know the barrier between their worlds and they will steal mortal people and they will bring them back across the border and then nobody really knows what happens to them at that point they hear all these wild stories that they'll be eaten by them and you know taken as slaves and at one point they were slaves uh humans were slaves to the fairies so i understood it was coming from maybe a place of i need to protect my family but i still was kind of uh I, I, t- maybe t- taken aback is the the right term i was kind of like not shocked but just kind of like a little taken aback by her decision i mean definitely you know the wolf first of all you know as a vegetarian i'm against hunting on all levels so these first two chapters involved this hunting scene and i was just like i texted alex and i was like oh you didn't warn me and she was like it's important it's important for the book um and it was (laughs) (laughs) only that one little part (laughs) yeah but it was very hard for me to read because you know the wolf does stare at her the wolf isn't trying to defend itself you know the wolf you don't realize if it's a fairy or not regardless it's an animal that's defenseless and is just sitting there and like looking at you and making eye contact and I obviously wouldn't have been able to do it so I just I guess it gives you a paint you a not to use her own hobbies but it paints a picture of Farah <laughs> uh, as someone who's not necessarily I don't want to say sentimental about an animal but you know what I'm trying to say she's a little more she's tough <laughs> she's tough mm-hmm. to be able to do that and then she goes and like not to get graphic but skins the wolf and does all these things that she has to do because she's developed these skills to for survival yeah uh and i get that but you know had she not done that then we wouldn't have had this story obviously but she comes from a place like alex said of like prejudice or this other species of life she doesn't know them she doesn't view them as human or humane she just looks at them as the enemy yeah Uh, so when she is you know she she detects whether he could be or not she just looks at it like look this is a wolf i can get money for this pelt and i gotta do what it's best for my family yeah so i mean to some extent you know, when it comes to the hunting in general, she doesn't really have much of a choice because if she doesn't go out and hunt, her and her whole family are going to starve because no one else is doing anything <laughs> to help them live. So I, you know, I, I don't think that she necessarily, this is one little issue I did have with the book is they claim that she did it with hate in her heart. And I think that SJM tries to make that a thing, but I just disagree because she didn't seem to me like she did it because she hated fairies and wanted them dead. It just seemed more 
more like a survivalist type of mentality more than anything else but uh yeah yeah i mean that that's all it has to be uh, that she she viewed viewed it as a paycheck to help her feed her family otherwise you know it's very cold (laughs) to just shoot at the wolf if the wolf is looking at you and being defenseless if it was chasing after her i would have been like okay well defense Mm -hmm. uh but obviously you know it was necessary for the rest of the book yes and as we do later find out as well, this wolf was a fairy that was sent beyond the borders intentionally to be killed, basically, by a human woman with hate in her heart because it serves a, a purpose in the plot later on. So it was intentional for us to know that this wolf seemed to be aware of what was happening and uh, still allowed it to happen. Yes. So in the novel, Favor reports that she and her two older sisters, Elaine and Nesta, shared a bedroom, a bed, and a dresser. One summer, Feyre painted each of their drawers on the dresser. On Elaine's drawer, she painted flowers. On Nesta's drawer, she she painted flames. And on her own drawer, she painted the night sky or just stars. What do you think this symbolizes in each of these characters? And do these symbols make sense from what we know about the characters in the novel? Yes. (laughs) So I really like this because Elaine is the youngest sister uh, and she has a lot more to grow. She has a lot more, um, you know, to come into her own, to, to Come, come of age so the flowers um, can definitely symbolize she's not the youngest sister favors the youngest really yeah Aline's the middle sister and Nesta is the oldest oh all yeah. right well, I got that wrong but sorry <laughs> well there goes that theory uh oh, sorry <laughs> or maybe she just has to grow into her own some other way because right now they're basically just following her sister around as Farah does all the work and then just putting a hand out to collect money for her hard work and and go out and do their own thing mm-hmm. uh so Perhaps either way, she has to grow as a person. Yeah. Uh, So that's what it could symbolize. As far as Nesta, it's made clear that Nesta and her sister Farah have, you know, they butt heads, they have issues. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised that she would paint flames on her draw. Uh, And then as far as painting night sky and stars on her own draw, I don't know, I guess maybe when she dreams, perhaps it's the best times of her life because she's not having to deal with the hardships. She's not having to deal with doing all the work to provide for her family. So um, maybe that's why the night is most appealing to her. And then it does symbolize other things going down the road because later on in the story, she does meet somebody from a a night court. And I assume night court is always night, (laughs) but I didn't get to that part yet in the next book. And that would be maybe a foreshadowing of where she wants to end up. I'm not really sure, but don't tell me just in case. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, I think that these symbols definitely make sense because it seems Nesta has a little fire in her belly from the, the uh, encounters that we have with her. I think that she I think she's a little fireball. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Elaine seems a little more muted as a character for me. Uh, the couple of times that we are encountered with her, she she just seems like a flower would be best maybe for her. Perhaps maybe she's prettiest or something. I'm really not sure. But I'm sure Alex will clear up all of that. I don't know if she... They're all described as being very pretty, I think, just in their own ways. I think Feyre says that Elaine is, like, the softest of all of them. Like, she has the most feminine, like, softest type of beauty. Okay. Um, that would make sense for Flames, then. yeah. I also like, I I really like that Feyre did this. I thought this was really cute um, when I first read it. And 
I think, you know, throughout the, the book, we don't see her sisters too much in the book, but when we do, Favorite is talking about how Elaine is always tending to her garden. And even when they do have money, she's still pulling the weeds and making sure that she's tending them, even though it wasn't considered something that a lady would do because they have servants for that. So I think that the flowers do represent a type of purity. I think Elaine is supposed to be from... from Compared to Feyre and Nesta, at least, she seems to be the most pure in her intentions at times. She seems to be the most, like, innocent. agreeable, innocent. Yeah, the most innocent, definitely. So I think that the flowers not only represent her love for growing them, I think she's also maybe a, a nurturing person. She likes to tend to the flowers and things like that. She likes to watch them grow and to help them grow. So I think that that would maybe be a little bit symbolic of that. I agree with you about Nesta. Nesta is a fireball. Like she, she's one of my favorite characters and she always was. She gets a lot of hate from people and I don't really understand why because I think she is A, hilarious and B, <laughs> badass. Like, okay. I, uh, I really enjoy Nesta. I think she's super funny and I think she's really tough. And it's funny because she's kind of described as cold but she seems to have this like fire in her that makes her just a real like wildcat. I don't know. I, I really enjoy her character and I like that the flames were used to represent that fiery personality in her, kind of like a repressed rage, honestly, but um, it's just how she seems. She, you know, when she's talking to Feyre about their parents, it's, you know, she, she loved her mother. She was close with her mother. I think she's described as being the most like their mother, but she has a real hatred for their father to the point where in the beginning of the book, Feyre says that she won't even talk to him. They'll be sitting across the fire from each other and she just acts like he's not even there. She gets, you know, really angry with him for letting their mother die and then for not taking care of them and just basically being weak so i uh i think the flames do represent that anger in her as well and then for Feyre, I, I mentioned before with the painting, I think she's kind of a dreamer. And I think that's where the, the night sky comes in. Kind of like you said, when she's dreaming, she's at maybe at peace or the most happy. And I agree. I think it represents her, you know, her her tendency to dream about maybe something better, bigger and better. Yeah. Because in the dream world, when she sleeps, she's able to maybe dream of doing things that she can do for herself. Yeah. When she's awake, she can't do things for herself. She has to make sure everybody in her family is provided for. So yeah. she has to put the all before her own needs and her own wants so yeah but you did bring up the father so this is a perfect time to talk about him so Feyre's father throughout the novel is as Alex said depicted as weak crippled uh he's neglectful of his daughters obviously he should be the one that's going out hunting and doing these things for his daughters mm -hmm. for survival Feyre describes her mother who had died of typhus when she was a young girl as being similar to Nesta uh, on her deathbed Feyre's mother told Feyre to stay with her sisters and to look after them. So why do you think her her mother asked this of Farah being, like you said, the youngest? And what is your opinion of both of Farah's parents expecting her to be the one to take on the caregiver role in the family despite being the youngest? Yeah, I don't. So this is another thing that used to bother me in the book, too, because I was like, why would you ask the baby to be like, take care of everyone? <laughs> you know, make sure that you take care of your sisters. Um, it's odd. Yeah, it is. And the only thing I can think is that her mother recognized that Feyre might be the only one capable of doing this. Elaine is definitely too innocent, too soft, maybe would not be capable of, of doing this. And Nesta is maybe just too stubborn 
which I, I think honestly is the case because she even says like I was just waiting to see if he would go out and do it and he never did but instead of doing it herself it was like she would just die from stubbornness <laughs> so maybe you know her mother recognized that in her and that she would be the one that would do the right thing in the end so in terms of her father I think her father is a really weak man he is kind of wallowing in his own sorrow and he's probably pretty depressed but he really doesn't do anything to help contribute to the survival of this family and it's it's really unfortunate but i think in the end it's just who he is kind of <laughs> i don't really know <laughs> Yeah, doesn't she get into a, uh, a backstory on the father and then he was injured or he was maybe she watched them yeah um, watched people hurt her dad um and yeah. he, he was made crippled from that situation and, and wasn't it because maybe he they were in debt or he owed money to somebody or that's exactly what it was yeah so they had actually grown up pretty rich her father was called the prince of merchants he was uh he sold jewels and things like that and he would invest things for people and then one day his ships were attacked during trade and the the creditors they were already in debt and the creditors were coming to collect and they didn't have any, he didn't have anything to give them so they i think smashed his knee with like a club or something like that and Feyre was the only one who tried to stop them and at the time you know again being the youngest she was also it appears the only fighter so you know Nesta and Elaine were scared as they all were and they kind of hid in the bedroom and Feyre is the one who stood by her dad and tried to convince them to stop but so she ended up witnessing the whole thing yeah I guess that shows you too. Um, she had to toughen up as well watching that. Yeah. Watching her father get crippled. Yeah. But I still, it still bothers me that even though he's crippled, he should be doing more for the family. I feel like he's not doing anything. He was reminding yeah. me a lot. I don't know if you've ever seen Willy Wonka. Yes. He's reminding the grandpa. Me, grandpa Joe. Wasn't the same? <laughs> yes. Joe? Like he's just laying in bed, laying in bed. He doesn't do anything. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I got the golden ticket. And he's like, oh, he's like, oh, I'm going to get out of bed now for the first time in 30 years. And I'm going to go help you get more chocolate. Like, no. Yeah. Come on. You know, he's just, uh, its he reminds me of him. He doesn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't like the sisters at first either because neither of them do anything. I just seen, you know, Farrah putting all of this weight on her back mm -hmm. and having to do all these things to make sure that these people were provided for and they weren't, you know, reciprocating and, and doing anything for her as well. So, yeah. uh, but I did like the, the fact, and we're going to get into this now, but um, well, I'll hold on to it until we get this question out of the way because- Okay. Yeah, this is exactly what I was going to say about the dad. So I'll bring it up in this one. Okay. Um, okay. So when Feyre is first taken into Prithian by Tamlin, the High Lord of the Spring Court, who can shapeshift into a beast-like creature, what characteristics does she display that contribute to her survival? And in what ways does Prithian seem to be a better home for Feyre than the one she left behind? Okay. So when this happens that this beast-like creature comes and says, who murdered your murderers? Who killed the mm. wolf? Who did this? And, you know, she steps forward and says, oh, Farah says, it was me. I did it. And he's like, well, you know, as far as this rule goes, I have to, you know, a life for a life. You have to come with me. So he takes her. And before she leaves, she wants to say bye to her family. She tries to let them know, that, hey, there's some money from the pelt that I sold at the merchant's place earlier. You know, there's uh, somebody in the town that I taught who can make traps for the animals. So this way you guys can feed yourself. She's so concerned about them because they rely on her yeah. to feed them and make sure that they have 
you know, money. Uh, but the father actually does say, uh, I think at first he actually says, oh, it was me that did it. And the beast is like, no way, that's <laughs> impossible. Look at you. Yeah. Uh, so he actually steps forward for his daughter. So I did like that. And then he does tell Farah, hey, uh, you know, never come back. Never come back to this place because he knows that she's too good for this for this place and, and that yeah. she's not even able to be herself. And she got robbed out of, out of like a childhood. Mm-hmm. So Prithian, when she does go to this other world that seems, you know, too good to be true, I should say, but it, <laughs> it seems like a fantasy world. You know, she's at this place, this beautiful big mansion. She has all this space. She has paints. She can do whatever she actually wants to do. Of course, it's a better home for her personally than the one she left behind because she didn't have a life where she was living pre- previously. She was doing everything for others. In this one, she's able, in this place, she's actually able to, you know, be herself and, and do what she needs to do for herself. Uh, so, obviously, even though it's not ideal, she's taken by this beast-like creature and she's in this place basically being held hostage. It's kind of like a prison that's better than not. (laughs) So it it works out in her favor, even though despite being kind of a prisoner at first. Uh, Yeah, I I agree with everything that you said. Um, I believe that it's the first time in her life that Feyre can focus on herself. She spent her entire life focusing on the needs of others on you know what her mother needs what her father needs what her sisters need and she never is able to pursue her her desires for painting or anything like that you know maybe here and there but not to the extent that she would like to and i think she didn't she never really had a chance to learn what she is like or who she is she kind of had a lack of identity and right. now that she doesn't have to worry about their survival even though she still does but she a lot is out of her control at this point there's really not much she can do she can finally kind of sit back and say like well what do i enjoy doing at one point even in the book i think she says you know without having to go out hunting and and making sure that everybody's fed and that the fire's going and all this stuff like i felt hollow i didn't know what my purpose was she doesn't say it exactly like that but it gives you the sense that she had this lack of purpose at some point and that's when she decides oh well maybe i can just start painting now and and she does so i really liked seeing that i also think we see a lot of characteristics in in um Thera's character that do help her to survive she is very resilient. She's very clever and smart. She's very observant. So even as she's being taken across the border into Prithian, she's making note of all the trees. She's making note of where they're going. She, once they're in Prithian, she's trying to figure out, okay, how can I escape from here? Where can I hide? There's a, a bush over there that I can hide in if I never needed to. And I think it's nice to see that she is a survivor. And I think that that's made pretty clear. But we also see other things. Like I said, I, I think she's very smart. And I think that she's clever and i think that we start seeing that um and i don't even know if she recognizes it so much in herself yet but as a reader i feel i felt like i could pick up on that just from observing her in this new world yeah and it's different than beauty and the beast uh because he she's not locked away in a cell or anything like taking maurice's spot she's <laughs> she's actually you know he, crazy he brings... old maurice i'm sorry i had to <laughs> say it <laughs> don't kill gaston on me uh please where's doug I hope he doesn't hear anything because Doug's Gaston's like his favorite character. But uh <laughs> so sad. He says he's he says he's not the villain and he's the hero. Please don't get me started. Uh That's hilarious. I can't stand it. Freaking Doug. Uh I can't. But but yeah, uh, you know, he brings her to this place and is like, all right, well, you know, go all over the place on the land. So you could help yourself to the house, help yourself to all the food, do whatever you want. I don't care. And she's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and he's like, yeah. you got free reign, man. You can do whatever you want. He's like, I would stay close to the house, though, just because, you know, they're not going to take kindly to humans wherever you go. 
but she does show her characteristics, like you said as well. I, I mean, at first when she is brought there, she's afraid to eat the food. She has some common misconceptions about their kinds yeah. you know she's like oh let me not eat the food because they're gonna poison me and he senses that and he's like look we're not poisoning you man just eat because you got to be hungry you know yeah uh and there's also you know she'll she thinks that they're not allowed to lie to her she thinks fairies yeah. have to be truthful which is definitely not true mm-hmm. uh and she has that idea at first so she feels like all right well he just told me i can eat and that he's not going to poison me so that must be true so it's interesting that you know the, the prejudices and the common misconceptions that she has yeah. and then she starts to pick up on the reality of it so it's like she's brought from reality to her fantasy like dream world because she's able to be herself and do her thing but she snaps out of the fantasy myth stuff and all the fake things that she thought was true and starts to learn that these are just basically people of a different species yeah just like her i like the way you said that yeah so in the spring court all the members are cursed to wear masquerade masks that they cannot remove. Tamlin's is described as, quote, an exquisite golden mask embedded with emeralds shaped like whorls of leaves, end quote. Lucian's is described as being bronze with fox-like features. And Alice's mask, who's the servant there that takes care of uh, Farah, is a simple brass bird mask. So what do you think um, these masks might suggest about the character traits? Okay. I mean, I don't know if it does, but I like to think that the mask is some some type of representation of the character wearing it. And I think Tamlin's is kind of more extravagant. It's got the emeralds. It's all golden. And I think that that suggests not only his station because he is a high lord, but also just his tra- like maybe being traditional. So the the vibe that i always get from the spring court with tamlin it reminds me of like a disney prince so like i imagine he is like in a big not a castle he's in a manor house but and it's very it's described as being very extravagantly decorated and he has all these servants and he just seems like he's very prim and proper type so that's I think what his uh, mask represents for him. The leaves throw me off a little bit. I assume it's because of spring. However, it does kind of seem more like autumn, but I guess if they're green with the emeralds, it's more of that sense of springtime and also maybe changes. I think leaves can sometimes symbolize changes. So maybe it suggests that he is heading for some type of changes in his life in the seasons of his Hmm. life Hmm. um i like that and then lucian's is bronze with fox-like features i think the simple bronze might suggest something of like a warrior type uh that their armor a lot of times is made from bronze and the fox i think is suggestive that he is clever and sly and maybe a little sneaky i don't know that's what i would think and then alice with her her bird mask, I think suggests that, well, first of all, it's a very simple mask, it's brass. So I think she is straightforward and to the point, she doesn't need all these frill, frills and bells and whistles like Tamlin has. She just needs a simple mask of brass. And the bird, I'm not sure, maybe movement. So she did relocate, we find out from the summer court to the spring court. So maybe it suggests that she is a character that will move to different territories or just move to different allegiances, maybe throughout the series. 
I don't know. Okay. That's that's my my thoughts, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I agree. That sounds legit. <laughs> uh so immediately with the masks, you know, going back to the whole Beauty and the Beast theme. Yeah. I was like, okay, because don't you remember that the prince was changed into a beast based on his actions during the masquerade bowl. So ah, that came back to that, that for me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're, if we're really going to dissect, though, I mean, he was he was being a jerk. Oh, he was, you know, yeah. uh, mistreating this elderly woman. And that's why she turned him into a beast. Dude, he was 11. OK, if he <laughs> like. Like, let's just get to the reality Accurate. here. All right. Because, oh, oh, on his 21st birthday, it was 10 years ago. Dude, he was 11. You're of right. He's going to be a little jerk. You know, hilarious. <laughs> but you, you don't realize that you don't think about that when you're younger and watching that movie. I have some issues yeah. with Beauty and the Beast now, <laughs> but <laughs> not to mention like bestiality, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got some issues with it. So they were pointed out to me and now I'm like, mm, I don't know, maybe Doug's not wrong and... <laughs> Maybe Gaston's all right. No, (laughs) Uh, I'm only kidding. No, but I also got not only from the masquerades, the masks made me think of that. His mask being gold reminded me of Belle's dress and how Belle's dress was golden, Mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, So I got that from that as well. Plus, wasn't the beast's eyes green? I have no idea. I could be wrong, but the emeralds made me think of his eyes being green. Uh, Tamlin's eyes are green. So there you go. Yeah. And he also doesn't have blonde hair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the golden mask, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It just uh, I feel like more likely, though, it's his um, his rank. Like Alex said, you know, he's a high lord, so he is wealthy. Gold represents wealth. Mm -hmm. As far as um, the leaves go, I like what you said about the leaves of change. He is going undergoing some changes as well, Uh, bringing a human here. He's trying to break the cycle of a father who was anti-mortals. And now he's trying to not follow in his father's footsteps. So that is a change. So I agree with you on that. As far as Lucian, Lucian has a bronze mask. Again, I think it goes to rank because it was gold, bronze, and then we get to brass. Those are different levels. Mm. And that just reminds me of ranking. Yeah. Uh, different levels of, of wealth or station. You know, Lucian did belong to a high lord's uh, family. I think that he was, his father was a high lord. Yeah, his father is the high lord of the autumn court. So he left his uh, his court and joined this court to be by Tamlin. So he's kind of a deserter in a way, but there is a story there uh, as to why he's not um, in his homelands. But obviously he's very close with Tamlin. He works side by side him sort of, but not for him. So obviously he would have a, a lower uh, medal for his mask. And then Alice is a servant. So of course she'll have the lowest, the brass, uh, and it's simple. It's not going to be as elegant or as details as the other ones because she is a servant. So, and I think birds represent freedom and hope. So Ooh. it's possible okay. that, you know, like the wings of hope or whatever you fly away so i i I just think that you know she can maybe uh she seems very useful um her words and her whole demeanor really to farah in her change and her development so i think that that's why um what that symbolizes there so and she does later on help her very bigly because she um gives her really great advice uh that we'll talk about a little bit later as far as the fox i forgot to bring that up but i agree with you that foxes are supposed to be sly they're supposed to be cunning they're supposed to be a little you know sneaky Mm -hmm. so maybe that'll come into play in future books i'm not sure but he doesn't seem sneaky uh this is kind of like zootopia you know how the fox gets a bad rep (laughs) yeah but uh (laughs) 
but really he's the good guy, you know? So uh, I, I don't see, I don't see any like uh, sly uh, devious things happening from Lucian. Moreover, he's very protective of Farah, and we'll see that later on in the novel for sure. Cause he's very, he helps her more than anyone um, when she's doing trials that we'll talk about a little bit later. Right now, Alex is drowning in cat. I really am on the struggle bus over here. I am on the struggle bus, guys. Look over and you just have literally the whole cat just on you. It's hilarious. I know. Up in her face. She was like drowning. He gets mad if I try to move him and then he hits the microphone and it's just, he thinks who he is. (laughs) The animals run this house. I do think we see, we do see a little bit of slyness from Lucian, not a, a ton, but just a little bit in his character. And oh. I, I agree that I would like to see, you know, more of that from him. Yeah, now that you say that, he does help her towards the end of the novel. But at first, he is kind of weary about her just because she's immortal and same reasons that she has the prejudice against, you know, this type of species. He has the same for her, of course, because... Yeah, she did kill his friends. I mean, let's, you yeah. know. Uh, but one part, she he tells her to go find this being that we're going to talk about soon uh, to find this being and then, you know, call if she comes into any trouble and she does scream out and later he admits he hurt her and didn't help. Yeah. So that is a little. Yeah, he hesitated. Plus, just in general, he's a little snarky. And uh, I thought he was hilarious. He is hilarious. I like Lucian. I- I really like him as well. Yeah, I like him too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then, oh, should I say my theory? Yeah. (laughs) That I was wrong about? Give us your theory. So at one point early on in the novel, too, it it mentions how Lucian's missing an eye, right? He has like an eye patch or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually- He has like a metal eye that like. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, He's a fake eye. Yeah. Uh, So he had, he's missing an eye and we don't, we didn't know why. And the wolf that she killed, the reason why uh, Tamlin, the beast, you know, comes and takes her, she shot that wolf in the eye. <laughs> so I was telling Alex, I was like, oh, the wolf didn't die. Maybe he's just not allowed to change into his beast form anymore. Maybe she altered him in some way. It's definitely Lucian. And they're trying to, you know, retaliate or whatever and, and get her back by making her do this. Uh, but I was yeah. not correct. <laughs> I was not correct. But it was, it was a, a good theory. theory, though. It was a fun theory. I mean, it, it, think about it. It was like an eye for an eye. That's yeah. what I was thinking because he said a life for a life. And I was like, ooh, an eye for an eye. This one doesn't have an eye. She took that one's eye. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, well. <laughs> Some other book. It was a good theory. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we mentioned Alice, who is the female fairy in charge of caring for Feyre while she's in the spring court. She gives Feyre a lot of advice throughout the novel, including keep your mouth shut and your ears open, as well as to keep her wits about her. She tells Feyre, even your senses will try to betray you here. Why do you think Alice gives Feyre this advice? And in what ways does Alice's advice help Feyre throughout the novel? So Farah, for those of you Beauty and the Beast fans out there that haven't read this book before that, is like the Mrs. Potts, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, so, you know, she has her kids, right? She's got her little chips in the cupboard. <laughs> she has uh, the two boys that she looks after. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, not not really. Um, she's not singing while they dance or anything. No, but, but she is like that character. Yeah, yeah. she, she reminds me of her. Uh, she's, you know, responsible for taking care of her, sort of like a handmaid. You know, she she makes sure that she's dressed and that she um, she's bathed and all of that. Uh, so I really like this character. I liked her because, uh, you know, she didn't she didn't take any shit. <laughs> 
(laughs) She told Farah exactly how she felt and she told her how it was and she wasn't trying to, you know, make everything all peachy for her. She she was a little more realistic in this fantasy world. So she did keep it real and tell her, you know, just keep your mouth shut and your ears open because there's going to be things that you need to hear that and, and not say necessarily and not in a bad way where it's like, keep your mouth closed. You know, it's more like you need to actually pay attention right now and 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 listen and uh, take in your surroundings rather than be all what's the word human, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, So when she says even your senses will betray you here, she's right. She's trying to give her a warning, you know, because there is a scene where she, Farah, feels like she looks out the window and sees her dad. And she's like, oh, my God, my dad's here to help save me and runs out there to go try to catch after her father. But meanwhile, it's a fairy world. It's a fantasy world. It's not human world. There is magic in this place. And there are beings that will disguise themselves as something else or make you see something that you want to see or long to see. So in that case, it was a being trying to lure her to eat her in a sense, I think. So uh, she was absolutely right. You know, don't even your senses will betray you here. And she says that again later on. There's a scene where Alice leads her somewhere to try and save someone. We will discuss this a little bit later. Uh, And she makes this place called Under the Mountain. And she gives her advice and says, listen, you know, don't be so quick to be so trusting, even of those you love down there, because everything isn't what it seems. Uh, So I think she gives her really great advice. Uh, I think that she tries to help her in, in ways that she can get away with without saying too much or implicating herself because she is a servant. And maybe, you know, it would be bad for her to be so open with her. But I think after a while they do form a nice friendship and she's kind of like a motherly figure. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree that she's definitely like a motherly figure to Feyre. She definitely becomes kind of a confidant for her. She's definitely the first person that Feyre trusts at the spring court. Mm-hmm. And I think you were spot on when she says she's trying to warn her. She's trying to help her. When she gives her this advice, she's trying to make sure that Feyre stays alive, but also that she stays vigilant and tries to pick up on clues about this curse that's going on that none of them can disclose to her. They can't tell her what it is. So they have to have her rely on these little breadcrumbs and clues that they can drop into conversations and and that she might see with her own two eyes. But then to also remember that just because you're seeing something doesn't mean it's not something else that things can change. We know that there's certain things are glamoured. Even Alice herself looks different when she first comes because Tam. it, it turns out Tamlin had glamoured her to look more high fey because her true form she has like skin like tree bark and he didn't think that she would be able to handle it It would be scary for her so he hides most of the people in the house he glamours how alice looks and it uh i think that she is just trying to explain to favor that just because you're seeing something doesn't mean that it is exactly how it is you need to be more vigilant than that and it definitely yeah. helps her later on. I mean, actually, I mean, I don't know if it so much helps her. Feyre, I feel like, doesn't really get the whole point of Alice's advice until it's too late, almost, until it's actually happening. <laughs> um, and then in retrospect, she's like, okay, I get it now. But I mean... Her advice uh, helps her under the mountain. She she thinks about it, what she says to her the last few things before she... Yeah, I mean, she does, she does think about it. She just disregards most of her advice. She tells her, don't drink the wine. It won't help you here. It's not like the the wine at Solstice. Don't make a bargain. It's the first thing she does. Like it's, you know, it's, she does kind of, I mean, she doesn't really have a choice. Uh, so it's not that she's just like, oh, screw you, 
Alice, but um, yeah, when it comes to keeping our wits about her and not trusting everything she sees, I think she does that doesn't really resonate with her until it's actually at a time where she needs to have that. Yeah, uh, a life threatening situation. Yeah. Yeah. I liked Alice. Yeah. I thought Alice was a good side character. Yeah, I like Alice too. And and for those of you that um, don't know what Glamour is, if you haven't read this or read other fantasy books or watched True Blood, for example, Glamour just means uh, that they're basically put under like a little spell, kind of like Shallow Hal, how he thought he saw women in a different way than they really looked. Um, you're under kind of some sort of, um, not a spell, but uh, your perception is changed. So this way um, you see things in a different way. So she sees things not so exact to what they are because she's just not ready to see them that way yet. She has to kind of um, gradually be shown things so this way it doesn't scare the shit out of her because it definitely would <laughs> So speaking of scaring the shit out of Farrah, uh, <laughs> Farrah encounters many monsters in the spring court and even fights some of them. She successfully traps a being called a surreal who gives her some advice. He says, or it says, should I say it in the voice? I might. Yeah, do it. Stay with the high Lord and live to see everything right. (laughs) Very cool. I don't know why, end quote, but I gave it kind of like a a sneaky type of voice. Uh, I really loved this part. But what do you think that the serial meant by this when he says, stay with the High Lord and live to see everything righted? And what do we learn about Farah through her interaction with this being the serial, as well as with the other monster she encounters? There's something called a, a naga, a, a puka, a bog. Bogey, yeah. Bogey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, I love the serial. I it's it's my favorite of like the beasties in this world. I think it's so cool well, in, in this book, at least. But it's it's just very cool. And yes. I like that it can kind of see the future, I think, is kind of how it is. Or at least it can feel things uh, about it was hooded, people. right? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me. Remember in The Lord of the Rings, the hooded riders? That's what I was picturing. Something okay. similar to that. Yeah. I think he's described as being like almost like skeleton like under the, the rope too. like his hand is all skeleton-y with like some like muscle on it or something yeah so he he's a really cool character he or she we don't uh, it's kind of agendered uh so we don't really know but it's cool and i think that he finds Feyre kind of fascinating i think when he tells her also stay with the high lord and live to see everything righted i think he understands the curse that is upon the land and he knows that she needs to stay with him in order to break the curse. And I do think that there's another meaning to it, but I don't want to give anything away for other novels, so I won't comment on it. But in terms of what we learn about Feyre through her interaction with the serial, I think we learn a few things. One, again, she's pretty clever. She's able to capture the serial, which Lucian and Tamlin suggest is not a very easy feat. They suggest that she won't even be able to do it, especially as a human, and she manages to do it. Whether or not she really did trap him and the serial didn't just allow himself to be trapped is maybe up for debate. She kind of speculates Mm. that she thinks maybe he allowed her to capture him because he was fascinated to see a mortal woman after centuries and i think we also see her compassion here so even though when we're first introduced to Feyre in the novel she is hunting and you know she's killing deer and and wolves and she doesn't actually want to be killing so she she doesn't want to kill the surreal she doesn't want to hurt the surreal she just wanted some information from the surreal and when towards the end of their interaction they get attacked by the naga 
And she actually, the first thing she does is aim an arrow right at the trap for the Surreal so that he can escape before she decides to run. And as a result, she ends up having to fight these Naga. She could have been long gone. She could have let them, you know, take the Surreal. They would have been distracted with him or it. And then she chooses not to do that. So I really liked that. I think it shows that she's compassionate. I think it shows that she's not heartless and that she is a caring person. And I think it also shows that she's brave and mm-hmm. she's tough. She ends up killing two of the Naga and Tamlin and Lucian are like mystified by this. They're like, holy shit, you did that? <laughs> like, um, So I think that that's that says something about who she is as a person. She is a fighter. She is a protector and she's smart and clever. And I think we get to see all of that in this interaction. In her interaction with the Puka, I think that's the one that is masquerading as her dad. Yeah, right. So yes. it, not so much just in her interactions with the Puka, but I think it it shows you what you want most. So I, I think it just gives us some insight into her headspace. So at first it appears as her dad, you know, below, but she sees him from the window and we can su- it suggests that what she wants most is for her dad to come and save her, to be a dad and to be her protector, for somebody to care about her safety and well-being. And then later on when she's trying to follow it and Tamlin points out to her that it's not really her dad and turns into a bow and arrow, now she's in survival mode she needs to protect herself um so i i thought that it was really cool to, so, to see all of this thrown into the novel it was cool to learn about the different monsters of the world and it was nice to see some information about Feyre thrown into those interactions because just like with Rebecca Ross, we learn interesting things about Feyre without SJM having to tell us these things. She doesn't have to tell us that she's smart or a fighter or protective. We see it happening through her interactions with the other characters. So I really like that. I agree with everything you said. I couldn't have said it better myself. You put the nail on the head. I'm in the coffin. Like she, she really, what is it? You, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> you hit the nail yeah, on the head. Hit the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, she, she's been training her whole childhood, her whole life since her mother died to protect her family since her dad's been injured. She yeah. knows how to protect herself. She knows how to throw a weapon. She knows she, her aim is on point. I mean, they were so surprised, Tamlin and Lucian, that she let the serial serial go and that she had such precise aim to be able to do that. So she's obviously, you know, trained for this. Perhaps uh, maybe fate is the reason why she was trained for this. So this way she would be, you know, have an advantage in this world as a mortal. Uh, but I love this interaction that she had with the serial. You know, I loved how he was begging her saying, please, please, like, please, human, help me. Yeah. Um, and that she makes the decision to help him because she did put him in that situation. So it definitely Mm. shows that she has compassion. It definitely shows um, that at her core, perhaps, you know, she's not really a killer. She's not a killer because she wants to be a killer. This is her choice. As far as stay with the high Lord and everything will be righted. uh, I think it's yes, it could be uh, the argument made that, well, if she stays with him, then she could break the curse. But there is a point where she separates from him and does not stay with him and she still breaks the curse. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a different layer. I think this is an onion where we're going (laughs) to peel back a different layer every book or in the next book or so, because there are other high lords, not necessarily this particular high lord. He doesn't say specifically stay with Tamlin or stay with the high lord of the spring court. He just says stay with the high lord and live to see everything righted. So I think it has maybe like a double meaning or multiple meanings, or at least that's what I would like to think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we don't really get a a concrete, you know, closure example um, in this book. So 
uh, I'm interested to see where this goes in future books, but I really love the interaction too. And like Alex said, she's so tough. You know, she does take out two, I think there's four yeah. of the Naga um, monsters that come after her and they corner her and she's able to defeat them uh, based on her skills. And that was really interesting to see. Uh, I like that she, once again, she puts herself second and puts something else before her. Like she was putting her family first. Uh, I think that's just in her nature and that's who she is at this point. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it shows us that she has um, a room for growth and we definitely see her grow in the novel. Yeah. yeah. So at one point in the novel, a fairy is brought to Tamlin's estate and we learn that she, who we later find out is Amarantha, cut off his wings and favor comforts him while he's dying. What do we think of this interaction and the scene overall? How do you feel about how somebody could desecrate another being so cruelly? Um, why do you think she hurt the fairy the way in the way that she did? And what are were her reasons? Um, she explains Feyre's, what in response to her taking care of the fairy, she explains that everyone deserves that comfort, whether they're human or fairy. Do you believe this is a turning point for Feyre? And what do you think it suggests about her character? Do you believe this was a turning point? I already, I already said that. Yeah. And what do you think <laughs> it suggests about her character? <laughs> So this was really interesting because at this point, you don't know who she is. So you're just wondering who's doing these heinous acts. Uh, and this, you know, fairy comes, his wings were cut off uh, and it was done in such a brutal way. And the poor, the poor thing dies in her, in her hands, holding hands with Farah. So of course, you know, this is a turning point for Farah because she's staring the wolf in the eye in the beginning and she still kills. You know what I mean? Whether uh, maybe it was because she had the drive of helping her family behind her. Yes. Um, but it's still cold to do something like that. So in this instance, she realizes this fairy is a, is a, is a life, you know, and it has feelings. Listen to the way that he's suffering. Listen to the way that he's crying about how could she just cut my wings off? How could she hurt me like this? Uh, so she does start to see them in a different way where she realizes these beings are, are beings no different than I. Um, these beings are, are just because they're not human doesn't mean that they're they deserve less or deserve to be, you know, harmed in any way. So I think this is definitely a turning point for her. She watches this fairy die before her eyes. She's very upset about it. Uh, I think that it shows that her character is start, starting to soften, but not in a weak way. Soften where she is starting to have compassion for other creatures. Uh, and I think that I think that the she that we learn later on, Amarantha, who happens to be the villain in this case, hurt this fairy the way she did because she's evil, because she's wicked, because she's bored. She's under a mountain. She likes all these games. We find out that she likes to toy with with be with beings and people. She toys with Farah later. Uh, so we'll get more into her. But and she certainly toys with somebody else because she has like their eye in her ring and she won't let that <laughs> person, you know, that person's immortal and she won't let that person die. It has to see everything from her point of view. So she's evil. <laughs> <laughs> Only someone so evil could do such a, a horrible act like this. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I really liked the scene in the book. It's very sad. It's very sad mm -hmm. to read about, especially when he's just the way that he's described as just hit, like hysterically crying. He's in shock. He doesn't understand when, you know, why this is happening. And I think that we see Feyre once again, she is caring. She is a caregiver type. And we see her now doing that for a fairy. So I think it's a turning point in the sense for her that she is now starting to, like you said, soften to this fairy world and to the fairies overall. I think she's starting to recognize that a lot of the myths that she had 
grown up being told are not necessarily true and that these people are just as complex and deserving of love and and affection and and care as anyone else regardless of the fact that they're a fairy so i think watching her hold his hand you know he's like oh i i want my wings where she took my wings i want the back and she tells him you know oh you'll get them you know you'll get them again you'll get them back and it was just really sad it was also really sweet to see Feyre, you know providing the comfort i do think it's a turning point for her and tamlin as well as lucian at this point i think this is where she really starts to trust them and she's starting to realize that she can live here and be happy and be safe and i think that that's important in terms of amarantha and what this says about her we definitely get more into her, you know, as we go through the novel, we later find out, you know, who she is at this point. Like Jess said, we don't know who she is, but she's cruel. She's a cruel ass bitch. You know, she's a real Cruella <laughs> Deville, And oh, she yeah. she has a, a propensity for for violence and for just at, just for being really psychologically tormenting, I think tearing off somebody's wings is a psychological torment just as much as it is a physical torment and i think she she knows that and she was doing this either out of fun or boredom like you said very good she was maybe trying to send a message i think it, it could be all three of those things um yeah yeah so um as you mentioned uh this is a turning point for when Farah starts to trust the fairies a little more and i i would imagine in turn they start trusting her as well after seeing that interaction mm. uh, so Farah starts developing feelings for tamlin fairly soon after arriving he ends up being her first love what do you think led to that initial attraction when she couldn't see his face because he has the mask and technically her jailer at first? How do you how do her perceptions of him change over the course of the book as her time in the spring court progresses? What changes do we see occurring in Farah as a person, as well as in how she interacts with Tamlin, Lucian and other fairies? Um. So first, <laughs> I think every time I think of this book, I think of a Cinderella story. <laughs> <laughs> because he's not wearing like a full face mask you know it's like a, a little masquerade mask i think it's even described in the book it just covers like basically his brow to like his upper nose or something so i always think it's funny because in that movie too i was like i mean you could see the rest of her face and her whole body and you still don't know who she is yeah, um, it's the girl from the diner man i can't I take that i love that movie don't get me wrong Same. but it's the tiniest little mask and he's like i've seen those eyes before come on it's so corny i know so corny now but it's just it always reminds me of the same thing so <laughs> I, I mean she can see most of his face so i think she can assume that he is attractive enough yeah. i mean she she can't see the whole thing but i i think she also she doesn't fall in love with him because of how he looks she falls in love with him because of his personality and he's the first person in her life who is protective of her he's the first person that provides her safety in a world where she's only known dangers and hardship mm -hmm. and i think she really falls in love with the fact that she can rely on this person she doesn't have to bear all these burdens on her own so i don't think it really matters that she doesn't see his face i, I know she would like to she speculates I, I thought it was sweet actually there's one scene where 
she asks him, you know, what, what he looks like. And he says, well, what do you think I look like? And that's when this like painter's eye comes out too. And she's describing his face in such detail and like including the colors. And I, I just thought it was cool to see that in her personality. And again, how her artist's eye can help her to see the world and to see people. And I think her perceptions begin to change because she gets to actually experience Prithian firsthand and she gets to experience Tamlin firsthand. But also, you know, it's just she she gets to see what he's like as a per. I don't know if they're considered people, but as, you know, a, a being. I don't, I'm just going to yeah. say people, but as a person, um, she can see that he has kindness in him. She can see that he is a good person and she can see that she can trust him. So her perceptions of him would naturally change coming from originally a perspective where she just assumed he was going to torture her, jail her, keep her a prisoner. And she just learns that that's not the case. So she's able to see him more for who he is and not so much for his station in the spring corridor in just in general, the world in terms of being a fairy versus a mortal. Um, and just in general, in terms of favorite changing, she definitely becomes more open with the fairies. She becomes more understanding. She learns more about Prithian and about the fairies and their their world structure and their abilities. And we see her not only forming this attraction and relationship with Tamlin, but also forming a friendship with Lucian, a friendship with Alice. She starts to worry about them and their safety and she cares about this blight this curse that's you know on the land as well she yes she's worried that it's going to spread to the mortal realm but she also is concerned for their well-being so we we start to see that as as her time progresses she no longer is this hateful girl you know with a desire to kill fairies because she needs to feel like she needs to be protected from them she sees that you know maybe we could coexist right and that she could perhaps protect them if yeah. there's something out there that's uh even more so trying to harm than how she had originally thought they would yeah uh, so this is another situation, too, that reminds me of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, and it's that part in the movie where she sings that song, you know, there's something there that wasn't there before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, she has the initial attraction. Um, he's displayed as a very good looking um, man because when they're not in their beast form, they just look like any human or I think that they, they might have pointy ear ears or something. Yeah, they have pointed ears. Uh, but other than that, they look human. So um, she does find an attraction in him and she does find an attraction in him too. And I think it's deeper than just looks alone because, uh, you know, like you said, he, he he's being a caretaker playing on the role that she never had as a, a figure in her life because she was always playing on that role. But also he gets her the paints, you know, he gives her the freedom to do what she'd like and actually, you know, gets her familiar with herself and be herself. So that's attractive to her because she's able to live her life and, and be her own person. Uh, so there's a lot of things going for him in that situation. And this is her first interaction, not with an, uh, a guy, because she does. It is a point that uh, SJM, Sarah J. Moss, the author, makes it a point to note that she did have some other type of male interaction, that she did have somebody in her town that she, you know, was uh, intimate with, not necessarily in love with. Uh, so this isn't the first man she comes across. And that's why she falls for him. She falls for him for the reasons that we said that she you know, she feels like he actually um, is caring for her 
taking care of her and filling in all of the missing gaps that she's had in her life and um, helping her replace all the the hardships. So uh, I, you definitely notice that through her interactions, she's becoming a different person. Uh, you know, she's not viewing them as a beast anymore. <laughs> like she was viewing them as beasts. Yeah. She's now viewing them as people. She's viewing them as, um, you know, lives that could be no different than her own, just different species. So um, as she grows in the in the novel, uh, you know, through her interactions with them, she she's starting to view them as equal. Yeah. So, of course, the only thing I will say, though, I mean, he does alter her perception. He is a little deceptive when he does that whole glamour thing and tricks her mind into thinking that people aren't there when people are. That's creepy to me, because if I was sitting outside yeah. in the garden reading a book and there's no one out there and I think I'm alone. But meanwhile, there really is a whole bunch of, of beings out there that would freak me out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she starts to trust him. But that would have made me take a step back when I found that out and been like, wait, maybe I can't trust him. Mm. So there might be a few things about him that I feel in the next book will unravel and perhaps Perhaps we didn't get the whole picture of him. So we'll see. <laughs> but as of right now, uh, he seems to be a kind, good, good soul, even though she was brought to him because he was mourning a friend that she murdered. So, yeah. 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 I, I agree with you that that is uncomfortable. And, and I think in the book, she says that she felt so embarrassed. She had no idea. And she doesn't like that that happened. But he also explains to her that he did it because he didn't think she was ready to see them, that it would terrify her. And I, I agree with you. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, that's her decision to make if it's terrifying to her or not. You know, like if exactly you don't have to. She's a big girl. Her. She's tough. She can yeah. handle it, I think. And I think this is a big theme with Tamlin and just his desire to protect, um, you know, regardless of what favor needs to be protected from. It's what he perceived her to have to be protected from. And at this point, he barely even knows her. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he's probably right. But at the same time, it, I think the reader knows Feyre a little bit better to know that she would not like that to be a thing. She would rather know what she's up against. She would rather know if there's fairies out there. She's trying to sneak around, you know, um, rather than having them hidden from her because he thought she might be scared. So another thing, too, that I notice is uh, later on, you find out that they're wearing these masks. They can't remove the masks. It's some kind of uh, a curse. Mm -hmm. and and that in order to break the curse, uh, they'd have to, you know, Tamlin would find a, a, a girl who a mortal who can uh, who is originally against them, which we see that she is because she murders a fairy uh, wolf in the woods. Uh, that later can be transformed into loving them. And we do see that characteristic happening with her. So I feel like maybe he also not knowing her, just knowing that she's a human and would have been scared, glamours her and tricks her mind into believing that it's more glamorous, you know, around her so that she's more likely to fall for him because there's less interference, less distraction. Um, people, you know, walking beside her that may be scary would distract her away from him. And yeah. he's trying to form a relationship with her to break this curse. Yeah, that's a Really very similar point. to very similar to uh to beating the beast in a sense only he didn't do that but uh yeah you know he didn't tell her about the curse either yeah so that's but, what was similar yeah yeah so despite taking care of Feyre and her family it appears that tamlin holds many secrets in the novel he continuously dodges Feyre's questions and declines to answer many of them he also appears to struggle with repressed anger at times in what ways do you believe Feyre and Tamlin are compatible throughout the novel? And are there any ways that you believe they are not compatible? 
So he is holding out secrets, as we know later, that there's a curse. He's not allowed to tell her certain things. There's like rules. Uh, He's not allowed to let on that there's a curse and that, you know, he wants it to be an organic thing. So this way it breaks the curse for his his kind. He does appear to struggle with repressed anger. We find out later that uh, his heart is altered. I'm not going to get into that until a little bit later. Um, But he's obviously um, repressed as well because it's made clear that the curse uh, doesn't allow him full access to his his powers, um, his strength. So there are a lot of things that she hold that he holds back uh, and doesn't let her know because perhaps maybe he's not allowed to, or perhaps he's tricking her, but in a way that's going to help you know himself and, and those like him. Uh, so they are compatible in a way because uh, she holds back a lot of things for herself too. She doesn't want to give full trust. It's all about trust, really. With Farah, she wants to make sure that she can trust him before she lets on about her feelings and you know about her beliefs. And uh, he, when we say that uh, he does care for her family. She is concerned at first because she was the caregiver. Now she's worried about her family's fate. And he makes it clear that he helped out in that situation. He gives her his word that um, they're well off. They don't need her to hunt anymore. And we do find out later when she does go home briefly uh, that it's a new home. It's a big house. It's not the little house that she shares. It's a little room or bed with her sisters anymore. Uh, It's much more improved. Everybody's living well. They're well to do again. Um, So he did keep his promise and and she feels much better about that. She's it's a load taken off of her when she finds that out and she's able to trust him for providing the the exact care that she was giving only in a a much better way. And obviously that she doesn't have to do it any longer. Uh, Do I think that there's ways that they're not compatible? Of course. I mean, she's a human. He's not. That's number one. I mean, let's be obvious. Uh, Fair fair enough. uh, But also, you know, she seems like uh, had it been the roles reversed, uh, I think that she wouldn't have been as kind. I think that she would have made him more of a prisoner, less freedom. I think that if the rules were reversed, that, you know, if he was like, can I have paint? She would have been like, no, beast, shut up. Go sit in the corner. Uh, (laughs) Go sit in the corner. You know, I I feel like obviously there are ways that they're not compatible. He's lived his whole life in luxury. He's never had to work a day in his life, like as far as like it comes to, you know, supporting and making sure um, he's provided for because he snaps his fingers and food is there, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's living in a different world completely than her. Uh, She grew up tougher because she had to endure realities of, of, you know, survival. Uh, so yes, he's immortal. She's mortal. <laughs> They're not compatible. Uh, but in ways they are also compatible where, um, you know, they're able to trust one another. He does care about the fairies. She starts to care about the fairies as well. And he sees that through her. And that's why um, they develop some feelings. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that they are compatible in a lot of ways. Again, she is very protective over her family. She has this desire to take care of them. And Tamlin has to do the same for his people. He has to take care of them. He's their leader. He worries for their safety and and their well-being. And I think... At the same time, Feyre is kind of looking for somebody to protect her, and he's kind of always looking for somebody to protect, and they fit into those roles really nicely in this novel. Um, I think that in terms of incompatibility, I do think Tamlin has some repressed rage. There's several times throughout the novel where Feyre will say something or do something, or somebody else will, and she'll remark that his 
claws seem to be coming out. So even though he's not really shifting into his beast form, his claws are still coming out. And even if he's not expressing anger, I think that's supposed to suggest some type of underlying rage, kind of like how Nesta has this underlying, or at least I think Nesta has this underlying rage. And I think he needs control. I think he seems like he's very in control of himself. He's very particular with what he chooses to disclose and what he doesn't. And there are some things certainly that he can't disclose because of the curse. So that's certainly a barrier for him. But I think even in opportunities where he can be more open, he is not very trusting. And I think he's very controlled in what he says and how he says it. And Feyre is not really somebody that can be controlled. So even though she is kind of docile once she comes into the the fairy realm because she doesn't need to be that fighter, she doesn't need to be the survivalist, at least until the end of the novel, I think that in the long run, those are two things that are just not going to mesh well because he gets... So I always think of the Knight of Calanmay, which we're going to get into, I think, in our next question, but she's told not to go and she does anyway and then when he comes back later he like throws her up he like kind of corners her against the wall he bites her neck i hated this scene i thought it was super creepy but it it's you know he's very angry and forceful and i think it's because not only did she disobey but you know she he didn't have control over the situation and i think he relies very heavily on people obeying him you know he's a high lord he's in control people do what he says and favor doesn't a lot of times throughout this novel she's really you know, coming back at him. She's snarky. She's making a lot of snide comments and she doesn't just listen. So I think that in that way, they're not very compatible. Yeah. I yeah. feel like I, I talked about that really long to say just like that simple thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're going to get into that right now. And as something that you said about how he bites her neck, uh, I feel like he's kind of like a full moon type of thing not to go to like you know a wolf and a full moon kind of like on that Mm -hmm. um type of trope but on this specific night he's not himself so you know just to give you an idea he does bite her neck and he's not really himself uh that's why she's told he makes her promise stay in your room please because i can't trust myself on this night like something might happen to me that i can't control myself Mm -hmm. um and i might harm you and he does and that's because she doesn't listen so let's let's talk about that so on this night of Colin, Callan May, Callan Mai, uh, Farah decides to join the festivities despite being told by Tamlin and Lucian that she shouldn't. She reports in the novel that she felt drawn there by the music, kind of an envious situation here. Uh, shortly after arriving, she's cornered by three fairies that appear to mean her harm. However, she is saved by a mysterious fairy that she describes as, quote, the most beautiful man she's ever seen, end quote. So what did you think of Farah's decision to disobey Tamlin, uh, his orders not to attend this festival, Callan Mai, Callan May? And what did you think of uh, how she was saved from the three fairies? How would you have acted in her place and... Uh, did you often find Farrah doing things that felt illogical or were you a fan of her daring? Why or why not? And I think I know this answer. <laughs> um, all right. So I'll start with the beginning. Well, first you did say that he was, you're right. He was not himself during that night, but I do think that we start to see this as a pattern with Tamlin. Like I mentioned, his like claws will come out or they're just like straining to come out whenever it seems like she's disobeying or isn't just blindly following mm-hmm. because in it, not only 
she she tells them though she says well why can't i go explain it to me and nobody will explain it to her and i think that's part of where that lack of openness and the you know i don't even know if that's so much a lack of trust but it's just the lack of being open and honest with somebody communication yeah you know if you don't want her to come to here explain to her and i think if they had explained it to her she would not have gone but (laughs) they didn't and i do think she was drawn there for maybe more than one reason but you know i i think you tell somebody especially a strong-willed person who is not used to being controlled is used to being very much in control of her own person that they shouldn't do something and then you don't tell them why they're going to want to do it. It's like when kids, you know, you tell them not to touch an iron and you say, just listen to me. I'm not going to tell you why they touch it. And then what do they learn that it's going to hurt them? But if you explain to them, hey, if you touch this, it's going to hurt really bad. I'm telling you, please don't touch it because I don't want to see you get hurt. Then they listen. So I think that it makes sense that Feyre went. I don't think it's illogical unless you as a reader expect her to just blindly follow a man's instructions as well. And maybe I'm just getting all feministy again <laughs> up in here. But I do think that this dynamic mimics that of a domestic relation, a domestic violence relationship where somebody will be violent and then the next day say, oh, well, I wasn't myself. And then they're sending them flowers and saying, you know, I'm sorry. But at the end of the day, I do think that he could have controlled himself from doing that if he wanted to. I think the lack of control was in regards to something else and not so much that specific situation but i i well first off i mean you you've read further on uh more books than me so you know more about tamlin than i do uh so that being said as far as from this point of view not knowing anything further about him uh i looked at it like he was trying to protect her and he did say you know don't come out because i could hurt you and i don't want to do that so he was trying to tell trying to trying to protect her by telling her to stay home. She also had that advice given to her from Alice and others. Uh, yeah, but nobody explained to her why. No, she kept asking, what is Callan May? Why can't I go? What is it? And nobody would answer her because Tamlin told them not to. And right. you know, my opinion on this is based on my initial reading. I'm not I'm not factoring in things from the other books. It's solely based on how I felt initially reading this book. Because when I first read this, I felt the same as Feyre. I was like, Well, why yeah. the you know, why the fuck can't she go? Like, you know right. what I mean? Why isn't anybody answering her questions? Like I felt frustrated as a reader. And Personally, I just didn't like, I I mean, maybe this is just me being a little bit of a bitch, but I was like, I don't like these men. And then Alice is being told by Talon not to tell her anything. But why, why does she need to be kept in the dark? You know, I mean, we find out later on, but I still, you know, even in subsequent readings, I still don't understand why they couldn't tell her, you know, what was the harm in explaining it to her? There was nothing here that she couldn't know. They chose not to do that for whatever reason. I think it's personally about control. And that's just my opinion. I I agree that he wanted to protect her. I just don't think he went about it the right way. I think if you really want to protect someone, just be honest with them. Say, I have to participate in this right. There's going to be magic channeled into me that I will not be able to control. And then I'm expected to perform in this right where he basically has to replenish the magic of the the earth through. For uh, spring. Yeah, for spring through. intercourse with a a selected woman and he knows that if she's there he'll be distracted and want to do it with her and he can't do that if he just explained that i just don't see why she couldn't know that you know what i mean maybe he it was a uh like a defense mechanism for himself because he was starting to catch feelings for her and he didn't want to let that on to her but it comes either way he wants yeah and not what she wants you know But either way i agree with you that you know it's a lack of uh, lack of communication 
had he communicated it a little more accurately, then perhaps she would have stayed home and we wouldn't have had this scene. So I think this is a good scene because she does run into somebody who plays an important role later on in the novel. Uh, She does show that, you know, maybe she can defend herself in some ways, but in other ways, if this masked person, you know, didn't come about this stranger and save her, you know, had she, would she have seen some, some trouble and it would have been in her best interest to stay home. So I agree with you. Yeah, there's a lack of communication, but without that, this this part of the novel wouldn't have existed. So, and I liked this part. Yeah, no, <laughs> I did too. And I, I did forget to touch on that too, that she is attacked by these three. Well, not, she's, she probably would have been attacked, but at this point she's just kind of being cornered by them. And then a mysterious fairy. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. Um. But yeah, she describes him to be the most beautiful man she's ever seen. And she also feels that there's maybe a danger there too. So she's like, oh, I might have just traded one danger for or one threat for one that's even more threatening. But it was just interesting to see this all play out. I really liked seeing that. Um, I liked how it was done and how would I have acted in her place? Honestly, I think I would have gone. I think if... (laughs) I, I think I probably would have gone. Um, we see this later with Feyre as well, where she's told, "Don't drink the, don't drink the wine, don't drink the wine." She drinks it anyway. She ends up getting like buzzed, and it's you know has a grand old time and dances and stuff. But I think if you're constantly telling somebody not to do something, they're gonna want to do it because the best way to learn really is through experience so just because somebody else might know better it doesn't mean you're always going to trust their word for it and at this point she's still not fully trustful of them either and i i think i understand where she was coming from but in terms of her being saved and how she was saved i really liked that i you definitely get the impression during this scene that these fairies meant her harm and probably some type of sexual harm is implicated and this mysterious figure kind of comes and is like oh i've been looking for you and basically they're scared to death and they run away of this new threat so but he leaves favor alone and she ends up getting back safely so i have a couple of uh thoughts on this scene so uh the most beautiful man she's ever seen obviously you know he's going to come back in some way in the novel does come out that um it's this person who is from the night court. So going back to one of the original questions about her drawing, uh, her painting, uh, you know, the night on her draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> interesting little connection there that it's the most beautiful man she's ever seen. And he's from that court. So I think that's mm-hmm. going to be something interesting going forward. But don't tell me. Uh, just I would never. <laughs> <laughs> How would I have acted in her place? I would have stayed home. Uh, if somebody's like, listen, it's dangerous for you. I would have been like, all right, cool. I'll just stay home and read. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but that's me. I, I mean, I didn't feel like it was illogical for her character. because She is a daring person. And I feel like if she has maybe uh, some kind of issue, uh, maybe some issue with, with authority. She does. She knows that he's an authoritative figure, Tamlin, but she never really respects him. You know, she doesn't mm-hmm. really like, you know, cower to him ever. And she's always, yeah. uh, you know, basically uh, confronting him in ways that others would never dare to do. So yeah. this is so in her character to do to sneak mm-hmm. out and she feels like she's lured by the music and we do kind of i i kind of got a sense from this festival that it was like a, a huge orgy of some sort maybe and that's just probably me watching true blood and i think episodes. it's impl- i honestly i think it's implied <laughs> <laughs> uh 
but basically that's why these other three fairies see this this woman she's supposed to be beautiful you know and she has a mask on she's trying to cover her ears so she doesn't look like a human uh but they see her and they they look at her as a target because it's this type of festival that's happening and everyone's like bewitched in a sense um and along comes this beautiful man who doesn't look at her that way he saves her life and he's offering his protection he's kind to her uh and he sounds like he's hot <laughs> yep and uh <laughs> <laughs> and and you know uh he does sense he does know that she's immortal um regardless of of being seen he he know, he knows that her true nature so i just yeah. i really like what's uh, i like more that i'm going to say right now about this mysterious stranger because we we're going to talk more about him a little bit yeah yeah okay but as far as the neck biting thing that really pissed me off and annoyed me i also just thought it was like creepy because even though so He's not in his beast form, but he's still acting like a beast. And I don't like that. There was something very like icky to me, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still, didn't like it. I, didn't, every, I hated that scene. Yeah. It was just like, I don't know. I just didn't like, and on the neck too, I'll, I'll talk about this later when we get to um, the end of the book, yeah. but it reminds me of, of that scene too, from the end of the book. So I don't know. I, I, I don't like, it doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, and he he blames her too because he's like, I told you to lock yeah. your door and stay in your room. Yeah, Let me that's... bite your neck real quick. That's why I'm getting True Blood vibes also because he bit her neck. That's why yeah. it, it it like rings all of my like domestic violence bells too because it, you're exactly right. He does blame her. The next day, you know, she has this giant bruise on her neck, and Lucian's like, Oh my god, what the hell happened to you? And she's like, Well, ask him. He did this to me, and he's like, I'm I don't feel sorry for it. I told you to stay here, and you didn't. I told you to stay in your room, and you didn't. So you know, you deserve to be injured because you didn't obey me. I don't like it. Mm. Um, so yeah, meh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's telling of of more to come of his character. I will say there's more than meets the eye (laughs) to this particular beast. Always in fantasy. (laughs) All right. So as the danger in Prithian appears to be escalating, Tamlin decides to send Feyre back home. Once she is back in the mortal realm, she discovers that her family has reestablished their wealth and social standing. You mentioned this earlier due Mm -hmm. to Tamlin's assistance. She also discovers that she no longer feels that she belongs there. When she decides to return to fight for her love, Nesta, as her father had told her previously, tells her not to come back and that they are fine without her. What did you think of Tamlin's decision to send Favor back? What did you think of her decision to ultimately return? And what did you think of Nesta's advice to Feyre? So I like that this is a multi-part question. So uh, she basically is sent, she's in a sense forced to go home by Tamlin. He says, listen, it's no longer safe for you. You got to go, get to get stepping. Uh, you're not a prisoner <laughs> anymore. You're free. See you later. So he sends her off to go back uh, to her family, which he had said originally, you'll never see your family again, you know? Um, so it just shows that he's also softening because he's letting go his opportunity to break a curse. He's just letting her go. She does leave, which I felt like seemed a little out of her character because after a while she was growing feelings for him and she didn't want to go and leave them without help. But what could she really do? I guess she felt like at first. Yeah. Plus, I'm sure she she wanted to see her family. So she ends up going. She sees that he was true to his word. The family's wealthy now. Everybody seems to be doing okay. But they are glamored. They believe that she was at some aunt's house who doesn't exist. Uh, and, you know, all these things. And that glamoring didn't work on Nesta because she's a fireball. And obviously, you know, she can't intimidate me. Uh <laughs> So she knows the truth. So obviously she's going to say, don't come back because they have a different 
type of conversation than Farah does with her dad and her, her his uh, her other sister, mm-hmm. so, Elaine. So, um, you know, she she knows the truth. So she is open with her and says, you know, I I, I, I we were wrong about the way the fairies are. Uh, I have feelings for this particular fairy. He's in danger and he needs me. And she says, good, go, don't return because, uh, in a in a sense, you know, she's better off without them as well. Maybe in a sense, uh, you know, because they're yeah. already talking about she has all this wealth and all these things and they're already spending it carelessly. Uh, so who knows if, you know, the father's going to gamble this away and history is going to repeat or something like that. So she might be mm-hmm. more in danger there than mm-hmm. she would be in this other realm where she is being protected rather than being the protector. So mm-hmm. also I think Nesta might seem now she might be taking on her role and she might like the power and she might like the fact that she's caring for the family and that she's overseeing things and looking things over and Fair is not there to take the role. So maybe she's being a little badass and saying, my role now, you know, <laughs> like you go off and do you, I'm gonna do me right here, you know, and uh so there's a lot going on and a lot to unpack there. And I think that's going to be answered in the future books. But I thought it was nice of Tamlin to send her back and get her out of danger. Obviously, my perception of him will change later on in the book a little bit. And I'll go over that later. You know, I thought that it shows that he does care for her in a comp- in a way because he's not caring so much about the the curse. He's caring more about her. And that, again, goes back to Beauty and the Beast because Beauty and the Beast did the same thing. Beast mm-hmm. does send her home. <laughs> uh, she's free to go. And then, she, of course, she wants to go back and save him. So, yeah, yeah. getting yeah. all the vibes. Beauty and the Beast vibes. Yeah. So. This definitely follows that structure that the Beauty and the Beast story, you know, tells with if you love something, set it free. If it comes back, you know, it's meant to be or whatever yeah. the saying is. Part of Nesta, too, um, just to go back to Nesta for a second, but mm-hmm. uh, she's the most interesting character in her family because, uh, you know, now she's taking on the role. She wasn't glamored. She wasn't fooled, you know. Mm-hmm. And now, as her father had said, don't ever come back because, in a sense, you know, you're too good for this world. Mm-hmm. I think her sister's also caring about her saying don't come back. Yeah. Because maybe she knows and recognizes something in herself that she's um, – not otherworldly, but, you know, that she doesn't belong there. She belongs elsewhere. Yeah. I think Nesta even says to her during this scene something along the lines of, you were always too good for this place. You know, go and don't come back. You know, you you were meant for more, kind of. And I... I do. I love Nesta. And I loved that I the like glamour. I loved that the glamour didn't work on her. And Favor even says, like, her mind is so wholly her own that even Tamlin's magic couldn't penetrate it, couldn't get through that wall. And I just think that that's so funny. I don't know why. I just, it makes like, me laugh. And- you know more than me again in future books about Nesta. And I feel like this might foreshadow, and I could be wrong, but it might foreshadow or like symbolize the fact that she can't be controlled. Oh, okay. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can't glamour me. Yeah. <laughs> Try it, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, fuck around, find out, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, like I, I do too. And I, I really liked that we got to see more of Favor with her sisters. I really enjoyed reading about her interactions with Nesta. I think they were both funny. So when Feyre returns, her father throws her this ball to celebrate her return. And she says, like, I stood close to Nesta the whole time because she was really good at keeping people away. <laughs> just keeping them from approaching because she's a bitch 
<laughs> and, and I thought that was funny. I thought it really, it, it showed once again, it showed us who these characters are without having to really lay it out for us. She, we see Elaine who's being like the perfect hostess. She's greeting everyone. She's very friendly and agreeable and she is doing kind of like the right thing. And then Nesta's just like being sulky, like don't don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. And then Favor's just kind of following her around being like, I don't want to talk to anyone, but they're going to approach me because she's not as formidable maybe as Nesta, but she knows that she can kind of like be protected in a way from her, just from socialites instead of, you know, like a, a physical danger. So I really liked that. I, I really enjoyed reading this whole scene. And I loved that Nesta gave her that advice. I love that Feyre was kind of like, you can come with me, you know, maybe one day, you know, when it's safe, you can come with me across the wall. And Nesta's just like, nah, I don't think I'd like fairies, but I'll go somewhere else. You know, she kind of insinuates that maybe she'll travel somewhere far away. So I like that we kind of got to learn more about these characters during these scenes. And in terms of Tamlin's decision to send Favor back, I agree with you 100%. He genuinely cares for her. He does tell her that he loves her prior to sending her away. She does not return the sentiment, something she ultimately ends up regretting because she says that she does feel that way. She just couldn't bring herself to say it. She was really hung up on the fact that they do come from these two different worlds. She's going to die in maybe 50 years and he's going to live for however long. And there was really, you know, no point. I think she kind of said, not, not in those words, but she basically says, you know, what, what would I be staying for to live out my days getting old while he stays young and beautiful, you know? And uh, in terms of her decision to return, I think, it made sense. I liked, uh, once again, I mean, it just, it really does follow that structure of the original Beauty and the Beast. So it made sense. I expected that she would go back. I liked that she made the decision. I liked that she was given the opportunity not to return and still chose to, and ultimately ends up fighting for her love as, as we'll get into shortly. But I, I liked that decision and I, I liked this part of the book. I know there's a lot of people that don't, they feel like it was pointless, but I think it's necessary because it does. First of all, she doesn't beat the curse at this point. So by the time she does return, it's too late. And it's, mm -hmm. she kind of has to strike a new, a new deal in order to break the curse. So I liked that she kind of failed at breaking the curse initially because she was because scared. I think had she returned his sentiments and made it known that she does love him, I think when he said, I love you, if she would have said, I love you back, the curse might have been broken, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to get her to say it, perhaps. Yeah. But, hmm, meh. but he still sent her away. There's even so if he was all about the curse, he wouldn't have sent her away. Yeah, I, I think he did genuinely because even we see Lucian being like, give her a few more days, like, don't send her away now. And he's like, no, it has to be this way. And this is right after um, they get a visit actually from Resand. So he's we learned that the mysterious, beautiful man from Calanmay is, in fact, Resand. He's High Lord of the Night Court, and he comes to visit them while they're having lunch. And he scares Tamlin and Feyre enough that I believe this is what causes Tamlin to say she's not safe here and to send her home. So I, I think he genuinely does care about her safety at this point and is willing to accept the fate whatever it is from the curse mm -hmm. and maybe you know saying i love you was just one last to jeffrey although i do think he genuinely does love her at this point so upon returning to the spring court farah discovers that tamlin lucian 
and the spring court, aside from Alice, who managed to stay hidden, are in the clutches of Amarantha. She, we learn that she's the high queen of Prithian, uh, and they are taken to a place, uh, her realm, called Under the Mountain, to serve as her prisoners. Alice explains to Farah the curse that Amarantha had placed on Tamlin and his court, as well as how it could have been broken. Uh, Farah decides to go under the mountain to fight for Tamlin's freedom and for their love. Once there, she must bargain with Amarantha, either complete three tasks or solve a, a riddle and win Tamlin's and all of Prithian's freedom. The curse would be broken immediately, she says, if uh, she answers the riddle. So what did you think of Farah's decision to make this bargain with Amarantha, as well as her inability to solve the riddle initially? And did you guess the answer to the riddle before it was revealed? Also, how do you feel about Farah's approach to the riddle in the three trials? And which of the trials seemed the most intense in its depiction, which would have been the, the hardest for you personally to face? Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. A very a good, very place, good to place to start. To start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what did I think of her decision to make the bargain with Amarantha? I mean, at this point, she doesn't really have a choice. Either she engage, you know, she agrees to this bargain or she'll be killed. So she feels like she has to make this bargain. She has to at least try. She is a survivor, so she's not going to just submit to and you know a, a death sentence. She's going to fight. And I like that. I I always liked that about Pharaoh. I like that she's a fighter and she confronts her fears and and the threats that are in front of her. Her inability to solve the no, no, um not the novel. <laughs> Her inability <laughs> to solve the riddle initially. I'm not really surprised. Um, it would have been too easy if she had, obviously. But also, I think at this point, I guess once we break down the riddle for you, we'll explain. But I think she needed to understand the concept behind the riddle before she could be able to solve it. And she doesn't really get to that point until the very end of the novel after she has gone through these three trials. So I think that it made sense that she wouldn't be able to solve it from a plot perspective because the book would have pretty much just ended at this point. And this yeah, is the best sucks. part of the like, book. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I guess just kill me. And, you know, like, yeah. the fun. Yeah. I did not guess the answer to the riddle. I am very bad at riddles to begin with, but I had no idea. And when it was revealed, I was like, oh, I get it. I kind of, as Feyre was going through it in her mind, I was like, oh, yeah, I got you, Feyre. That makes sense. <laughs> um, in terms of her approach to the trials, I I mean, I loved this part of the, the book. It's maybe like the last third of the book. I'm not sure. It's the best part of the book. It's my favorite part of the book. I loved everything about this. I loved watching her do the trials. I watched, I loved watching her interactions with Amarantha. I loved seeing Amarantha in all her glory. I loved seeing you know the the different fairies that were all being held prisoner and just learning once again a little bit more about this world so i i like that she used her strengths in the the trials for the most part um i could argue about the second one but certainly in the first one we see her her cleverness her cunning her intelligence is really at the forefront in addition to her ability to physically manage to get through a, a trial. In terms of which one I thought was the most intense and which one would be the hardest for me to face, they were all pretty intense. They all had pretty high stakes and we'll get into her tasks in a little bit um, in like a couple questions from now. So I won't go too in depth into them, but I did think that the last trial 
was the most intense and it would have been the hardest for me to face. I certainly would have died in all three of these. Maybe not the second one. Maybe I could have done the second one. It was another riddle <laughs> that she had to answer and it was multiple choice. So it should have been, <laughs> in, in my opinion, I think I maybe would have been okay with that one. But the first one where she had to fight the worm, I'm dead. The third one where she has to kill fairies, I'm dead. Uh, so I would not have made it out of here. <laughs> so like Alex said, I too did not guess the riddle. It takes her the entire time throughout the three trials in order to realize the answer to the riddle. I'm going to read the riddle. So this way, you guys, those of you who haven't um, read the book, uh, will hear what the riddle was. So it was, there are those who seek me a lifetime, but never we meet. And those I kiss, but who trampled me beneath ungrateful feet. At times, I seem to favor the clever and the fair, but I bless all those who are brave enough to dare. By large, my ministrations are soft-handed and sweet, but scorned, I become a difficult beast to defeat. For though each of my strikes lands a powerful blow, when I kill, I do it slow. Awesome riddle. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of sums up uh, exactly the answer, which is love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you don't realize that, that it's love. Uh, mm. And it's it was right in front of her face. It's the reason why she's brought back and and went into these trenches like in other words to yeah. save her love uh she's immortal she's not going to beat these people you know what i mean like they have powers they're strong they're stronger than her uh but she she goes in there anyway because she's blinded by the fact that she loves this this man this fairy this person and she wants to try and save his life you know by risking her own so uh i thought that the riddle was was really uh witty and and clever and the fact that amarantha puts it in front of her face the answer that should be the, the right the answer should have came to her immediately it's why you're here bitch you know uh she even <laughs> she says figure she's, it out. yeah she's like oh the answer's so lovely when Feyre doesn't know the answer she's like oh what a pity the answer's so lovely like, exactly <laughs> she like gives her the answer too like i don't know very good um we will get into the trials later but as far as for me the last one would have killed me if I wasn't dead already, because there's no way I would have been able to murder people. So yeah. Yeah. we'll talk about that more. Uh, as far as, is there any other things I didn't? Uh, oh, she does try to figure out in her head how to solve the riddle. She does try to work through it. I don't think she worked hard enough to work through it, but it's not even her fault. She was under duress of doing all these trials. She was injured. She basically almost died at one point um, that we'll get into as well. So uh, I can't really blame her for not using her brain because perhaps she couldn't. Uh, you lose <laughs> a lot of blood. You can't really think, right? So, yeah. uh, so you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt there. But I did not guess the yeah. riddle. I didn't know. Plus she was being like when she wasn't just rotting away in her cell and being kind of one step away from being starved, she was also being worked to the bone as well in between trials. So she she was, I, I agree with you under duress. I think it was difficult, but I thought it was funny too when she was trying to work out the riddle in her head. She was like, oh, is it the Naga? Is it the bogey? Like what 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 can do this to me? And it's just, it's more hypothetical than that. And I think she just wasn't, she couldn't think that way at the time. I think it's also smart on Amarantha's part too, because she's inflicting all this pain. She's, mm. uh, we're going to get to in the next uh, thing that we're going to talk about. She's, you know, faced with this hor horrific sight of something. Um, it's put in her face, all this physical thing. So she's trying to think of all these monsters and all of this evil and trying to think of everything except the right answer, which would be, you know, love, which mm. isn't evil. 
So yeah. So earlier in the novel, when Rhysands does come to the manor and he's threatening Tamlin and Feyre, he does ask for Feyre's name. And in order to protect her family, she gives the name of another girl in her town. This was an acquaintance of her sister's that she had never met. Why do you think she gave a real person's name? And how did you feel about what happens to that person? Her name is Claire Better. Uh, Later in the novel, we discover once Feyre is under the mountain, she was brutally murdered and her body is literally hanging on the wall. And Feyre, as Jess was just mentioning, has to look at her every time she is basically brought into this great hall. Right. It's just a reminder hanging on the wall of this you know, woman who Amarantha originally thought was Tamlin's love, but finds out later that it was not and she was deceived. Uh, it's a reminder of this could have been you. This will be you if you don't do what you're needed, what you're supposed to do. So, you know, don't go dying out there. Yeah. Also, if she would have died in the trials, maybe it would have been a little better because she said, the way that this, I the know. way it's depicted that this girl dies is so tragically horrific. She's like yeah. literally on a wall. Like you picture her like the girl from the ring style, like, you know, just like up there dead and a reminder that this is what happens to mortals if you if you mess with us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it did. I, I'm conflicted with my response. Uh, I don't like that she gave a real person. I think that uh, she brought apart uh, brought upon harm onto this girl, knowing that it would be something dangerous for this girl. And this it's explained that she doesn't know this girl really personally. It's not her friend, but it's a friend of her sisters. You know, so I think that she I, I think that she could have made up a name, perhaps if it was I, I would have. However, at the same time, again, she's under duress, right? So she's faced with this situation where I have to protect my family. I have to protect my family. And she can't think of anything but this girl's name because maybe she's thinking of her sisters and she knows this is one of her sister's friends, and that's the only name she can come out with to say. Uh, in order rather than implicating herself or her family she her main thing is i want to protect my family uh did i i don't think she really realized the implications that could have had for this girl and if she did you know she's basically thinking better than than my family not one of my sisters or me i just i don't know if i would have done the same if it was me if i would have given a real person's name but uh, under duress this is what happens and it's needed for the story because it is a reminder of her Every time she sees this girl that she did give this name and she's the reason why this girl is up on this wall dead. So I think it it was needed for her character as a turning point as well. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she definitely doesn't give the name to send them after this girl. I don't think she's thinking that clearly when she does give the name as the scene is described. First of all, Resand. So he has the ability to kind of penetrate people's minds and at this point, he has a mental hold on her on her brain. And it's essentially the same concept as somebody holding a gun to your head. And he's saying, you know, give me your name. And or, or at least it's right after he's done that. Either way, she's been shaken so much. She's like keeled over on the floor. She's shaking, crying like she's been traumatized by this whole experience. And then he's saying, give me your name. And she kind of says that she's like, I know I can't give him my real name, but she can't really think. So she just comes up with the first thing that popped into her head. So I don't think she had any ill intent. And I think she was a little naive at this point to understand really what the implications would have been by giving a real person's name. And I think that she, you know, she experiences what that'll be. And it's a very big lesson for Feyre. 
Um, Because not only is Claire taken and then murdered and then, you know, hung up on the wall as a reminder, but her whole family is killed as well. Their estate is burned down, her entire family is killed, and then she's taken, tortured, and and murdered. So I think that Feyre really had no way to anticipate this. She doesn't understand the fairies and what they're capable of. All she's seen of the fairy world, despite being told that there's threats, they can't give her details about it. So she doesn't really know how cruel these people are. She doesn't know what they're capable of. And she doesn't know really. She even remarks that Resand knew that that wasn't her, you know? So she really had no reason to believe that they would go and get her and then say, oh, you know, you're not the girl. And in this case, Resand just allows them to believe that it was Feyre. So in her mind, I think she believed that they would just know it wasn't her and kind of just leave them alone. I think that's very naive. Um, But again, she doesn't really know better. And this is a big lesson for her to learn. And it's definitely tragic and unfortunate. And it, you know, we wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I I just don't think that Feyre meant any ill intent. And I don't know what I would do in her situation. I, I can't imagine being that fearful and then having to come up with a made up name and, you know, at the same time being trying to try to protect my family in like a split second. You know, somebody asks your name, you need to come up with that immediately because otherwise they're going to be like, do you know your name or not? Like, give me your name. So I think she had to make a really tough, you know, a, a quick call. And it was the bad call. It was a bad call. It's 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 tragic is what it is. Okay, so I know that um, we had said that we were going to start talking about the trials and what she actually experiences when she's down there. So for Farah's first task, she has to fight this worm. It's called the Midgard worm, this giant worm. (laughs) She has to try and evade. For her second task, she must solve a word puzzle before she and Lucian are skewered by burning spikes. Uh, And it's important to note here that Farah does not read. She doesn't know how to read. She's illiterate. And that um, during this uh, multiple choices, Alex called it, there are words <laughs> that she can't read. Mm-hmm. She can't really decipher what they mean. So this is a little more challenging than Amarantha even realized. And then for her third task, she must kill three innocent fairies by stabbing them each in the heart with an ashwood dagger, which it's important to note, she had used the ash arrow to kill the wolf in the beginning so i think this is a little you know play on that she's just saying oh look you've done this before with ash enjoy uh so which of the three tasks was your favorite which character traits did farah display that allowed her to beat these tasks and during the third task it's revealed that the third fairy to kill is actually tamlet so did you predict that that would happen that that would be the case um, what do we learn about Tamlin and Farah in the scene and which would have been the hardest for you to face? Okay, so the Ashwood, uh, just to for anybody that hasn't read the book, Ashwood is the only thing that will kill fairies. So the mortals think that iron will repel them or, or hurt them, but it does nothing. But Ashwood will actually kill them. So not only does she have to stab these fairies in the heart, but she has to do it with an Ashwood dagger to ensure that there's no way that they can survive. So I think that that was just, again, Amarantha's cruelty coming into play once again, just showing how diabolical she is, you know, not these fairies probably would have died either way. I, even if you're immortal, I don't think you could survive a friggin' dagger to your heart, but she's going to make sure that Feyre knows that even if they could survive, she's going to ensure that they can't to ensure that Feyre kills these fairies, which is just really sick. 
my favorite task was the battle against the Midgard worm. <laughs> it was so much fun to read. I don't know. I loved it. It made me think of Tremors too. The I know you never saw that movie, but for anybody out there that did, that's what I imagine in my head is the Midgard worm or like maybe the snake thing from Beetlejuice. <laughs> and I I just really enjoyed reading the scene. It was fun and it was really cool to see Feyre just really beating it you know she she really succeeds and then when she's done she like runs at amarantha and throws uh you know a, a bone dagger at her and it's I, I it was badass i thought um so so i liked that in terms of the hardest one for me to face i think we did actually answer that in the other question but it would be the last one um though i definitely like i said would not survive any of these <laughs> um Feyre in terms of what character traits once again we see that she is smart she's clever she's able to survive and i think we see that a lot with the first one i thought it was funny watching her try to the, the first one was more her element uh amarantha even says you know oh, they tell me you're a hunter hunt this and it's just this giant worm and she does she manages to do it it played to her strengths in the second one, like you said, Jess, Amarantha doesn't know that she can't read and yet she can't solve this anyway. Amarantha doesn't even realize how uh, how hard this was for her. So I thought it was really fun to see her trying to figure out an answer without being able to read. And she's like, oh, one person is, you know, there, there were three answers total, one, two and three. And she says one is bad. It's one person all alone in the world. And then it's two people. Oh, that's like me and Tamlin, you know, good together. That's all you need is the two people. Three is too many. It's three sisters sleeping in one bed. So she decides that she's like, I could believe in two. I can believe in the power of two. And that's I'm going to put all of my faith that this is the right answer. And it turns out it's not. Um, but she does get some help from Resand, which we'll explain in a little bit. But to to be able to get past that task. And honestly, if it hadn't been for him, she would have failed that task. She would have died and so would have Lucian. And then during the third task, when it is revealed that that third fairy is Tamlin, I definitely didn't see it coming. There is a glamour. So she believes that he's sitting next to Amarantha where he's been the entire time that they've been held prisoner. And then when she looks again, Alice's advice comes back to her to not trust her senses. And when she looks back, it's actually the adder, which is one of Amarantha's right hand men, a creature thing. And she realizes that the real Tamlin is is sitting in front of her or kneeling in front of her and she's expected to kill him. She's understandably upset. She says this isn't fair. Um, even the other fairies that are now relying on her to set them free are, you know, start shouting that it's unfair. But we see Farah working through the, the advice from Alice, like you mentioned earlier, to pay attention to, you know, listen to what you're hearing and just use your wits. And she remembers that quite a few times in the novel, people said things to Tamlin along the lines of, oh, for someone with a heart of stone, you really know how to do this or, you know, something along those lines. And she is able to come to the conclusion that Tamlin's heart has been turned to stone and she has faith in that and she stabs him and it turns out it's true and, and he survives. And technically the curse should be broken, but it wasn't instantaneous. So it's it's not actually broken at that point. Amarantha does go on to brutally kill Feyre by breaking every single bone in her body and 
snapping her back and her neck and all this stuff. And then just as she's about to die, she comes up with the answer, which I think we'll get into actually in a little bit, but that's how it's ultimately broken. So I loved everything about this whole like last third of the book, but I think the Middengard worm was my favorite to read. <laughs> it's just so much fun. So I agree with you that this is my favorite part of the book too, because it was very slow. There's a lot of building happening throughout the book. So the first part, I would say 75% of the book is very slow. You know, it's, yeah. it's tough to get through because it's just a lot of, you know, nothings that add to something and you're just like, all right, let's get to it um, in a good way, you know, but also meh. Uh, so <laughs> once we get to the last 25% of the book, I was hooked. I loved it. I was so into it. Uh, it was so exciting and entertaining. You know, um, as soon as Amarantha came on the scene, I was like, look at this badass villain. She sucks, but I love her. Um, so, you know, like it got it got super dark for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was very interesting, like you said, very entertaining to read. So my favorite task is actually the second one. Uh, I really loved that one because it had me on the edge of my seat. The first one, I was like, mm -hmm. ah, she's going to beat this. And she does. And she was such a badass about it. It was very, very exciting to read, like you said. Mm -hmm. But the second one I loved because she had this secret that she can't read. And no one knew that but her and Tamlin. Mm -hmm. um, but she she was able to overcome it. Had she not been able to, if it wasn't intervened by Ryzand to help her and guide her in the right direction towards the answer then I believe that she would have died here. So, you know, I really like this scene a lot. Yeah. Um, but they make it, she almost does get killed by the worm. She doesn't show it, but she is very injured to the point where she might bleed out and Ryzan shows up in her cell and cures her. He heals her uh, and he basically marks her arm uh, and he's able to bargain with her and say, I will save your life. But, you know, out of that, you're going to give me two weeks um, of each month, a year of my choosing. And then they bargain further and she's able to, you know, bring that down to one week a month of his choosing. So that's going to be interesting going on in the second book. Um, but he also does brand her in a way. He puts a mark on her and it comes into play in the second task because when she goes to grab this three levers and one of the levers that she pulls will help uh, reverse the spikes and make sure that they don't die her and Lucian in there. Um, the other two will kill them. So when she does make her choice after thinking of which lever would be the correct choice, she goes to do it and her hands, the one that he branded starts to hurt her. So she knows, Oh, this isn't the one. Uh, so she would have killed her and Lucian had she not had his, you know, hand or literal hands helping her. Yeah. Uh, so when she does, uh, go to try for the other number. It doesn't work. And then she finally goes for the right number and she's able to pull it. So I think if it wasn't for his help there, she would, as clever as she is, um, the girl couldn't read. She can't even yeah. read. She can't even read. Uh, <laughs> can't even read. <laughs> so, you know, she wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't beat that task. So I found that one to be the most interesting. Yeah. Um, during the third task, when you find out that it's actually Tamlin, I did not see that coming. Uh, but it's very in line with Amarantha. She's a vicious bitch. Uh, you know, she, she's, you know, yeah, you came here to save your love. Why don't you kill your love? You know, like, ha yeah. ha ha. Uh, I just, I thought that she viewed this as there's no way that this girl who came to save Tamlin is going to kill Tamlin and I've got her now. Yeah. Um, so that was exciting to read too, because I was like, oh shit, what is she going to do? And yeah. then she figures out, like you said, everything in her head about the heart of stone and, uh, Amaranth is not true to her word. She does not uh, get rid of the curse because she knows that they will come for her. Yeah. Um, but in the nick of time, as soon as uh, she's almost killing Farah, Farah does figure out the riddle and 
she's able to uh, reverse the curse because Amarantha had a little loophole there where she said that she would immediately lift the curse if she gets the riddle, but she didn't say immediately if she solves all three trials. So that was interesting too. Uh, I really, I loved this entire series of chapters and this whole entire situation and scene. I thought it was very, very thrilling to read. Yeah. Uh, for me, again, the hardest to face would have been the third one, because even though the first two, her life is at risk here, her love is at risk and I would never be able to kill somebody I love. So <clears throat> the third one was very, um, would be very hard for me personally to face. Yeah. And she, she had difficulty even killing the other two fairies as well, but she had oh, to yeah. keep, yeah, she had to keep reminding herself it's two or three lives for the lives of all of Prithian. And she just had to keep reminding herself of that. And even as she's doing it, she's like, I will damn my own soul to save everyone else at this point too. So I think we do see a little bit of a martyr in Feyre at times in other areas of the novel too. And I think we do see that a lot in the, the third task as well. Yeah. It was cruel to make her kill after her character arc. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. This really the at this point in the book we're taking a super pivot from the Beauty and the Beast <laughs> to retelling. It's like to I, I think you had said you were like this is a completely different book at the end. I was like yeah I know yeah, the, that's, that's why I love that's this when part. I started loving it. I know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like this is great. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so while we'll she's tell you un- more why more it's great right now. <laughs> <laughs> while she's under the mountain, Favra is helped many times by several different fairies, including Lucian, Resand, and the Lady of the Autumn Court, who is actually Lucian's mom. So Resand is a complicated character in Akatar. He is the High Lord of the Night Court and appears to be assisting Amarantha's efforts. Despite being told that he's an enemy, he helps her many times while under the mountain and answers all of her questions honestly when she does ask why do you think he helps Feyre and ultimately fights for her at the end and what sense did you have of his motivations and just in general where did he seem to fit into the story i love this character uh i think that even though he's so complex because he appears and they say things aren't what they seem here don't trust your, your senses Um, He appears like he's the bad guy, you know, but really he's just a victim also of Amarantha and Amarantha has taken a liking to him. So he has kind of no uh, way around it where Farah has to kill uh, three fairies in order to save the realm. He's doing what he needs to do to save his. So I feel like, you know, him, uh, they call him, they nickname him Amarantha's whore because he does whatever she asks he views it as I'm doing what I can to help save my people. So obviously I'm going to comply and play by the rules so that she doesn't find an enemy in me and hurt my people. Yeah. Um, so I really, I think that tells you something about his character. You do realize he's not the bad guy. He keeps trying to help her. He's, um, you know, he's always intervening in a way that's going to make it things easier for her. Uh, he, uh, kind of glamorous people in order to not um, make things worse for her. They're giving her dirty water and asking her to get a room clean. Obviously, she can't do that with dirty water. Um, things like that. Actually, I think that that was actually Lucian's mom that intervened and, and yeah. makes the water clean. But you get it. She's she's doing all these chores that are seemed impossible. He mm-hmm. kind of makes that go away. So uh, I really liked him a lot. I first I didn't like him because I was like, oh, he has to she has to promise herself. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. You know, for a week, uh, every month. And then I was like, oh, and she's he has a, a branding on her. I feel like he's trying to make a wedge between him and Tamlin. 
in a way, he kind of was trying to piss off Devlin. Yeah, he says he uh, was. <laughs> but in the same way, uh, he is doing more for her than Tamlin is. You know, there's so many scenes where Tamlin's just sitting there and not even like doing anything. He's afraid to say the right thing, where Rezand is not afraid to say the right thing and to do the right thing. And he intervenes and tries to help her every opportunity he can uh he bets on her i think he's the only one that bets on her survival in the first task uh you know he's just i think that he he shows exactly who he was when he was the stranger how he was helpful to her he was kind to her that's who he really is i believe by nature he just had to literally and figuratively wear a mask uh to play a role for this villain he wasn't wearing a mask actually well right Okay, that's why he was beautiful to her because he had a face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, he has a face. Not <laughs> the face. You know, the guy with the face. <laughs> hey, you with the face. Uh, but I think maybe he has a soft spot for Farah, and that's why he ultimately fights for her at the end. But he does. He does. There's this one scene in particular that just stands out to me. Uh, well. Before I get into that, there's this part, these parts in between the trials where she has to go to these parties and play a fool, a jester, basically. Um, And in order to help her out, he tells her, drink the wine, you won't remember shit. So she does that. And this way, it's easier for her to just, you know, fast forward that and, and, you know, think about what she really needs to do. So he helps her there. But the one scene that really stands out to me is that. Uh, at one point, Tamlin, who just snaps back into reality, comes and, you know, meets her in a different room and they're making out and all these things. And she has paint all over her and the paint tr- goes onto him, transposes onto his skin, on his clothes. It's all messy on her face. Uh, and if Rizan didn't step in and say, what the hell are you two doing? This mm-hmm. isn't cool. Yeah, They would have went in there and it would have gotten uh, maybe both of them, but definitely would have gotten uh, Farah killed because she would have had all of this evidence that something was going down. Mm-hmm. So Rizan stepping in and then using his magic to essentially erase the damage that Tamlin was causing makes me question Tamlin. Yes. Uh, and yeah, so I have my my suspicions about him uh, also because Alex, you know, I had seen something. She put a, a TikTok post and she called him a tampon instead of Tamlin. So <laughs> A part of me is like, all right, this guy's going to become, what is he going to do? He's going to do something. So, you know, you don't just earn that nickname for being a great guy. Uh, So I was like, all right, something's going to go down. I don't know exactly what yet because I didn't get to the second book and it's not explained here. But this was an introduction for me to say maybe this guy is not the best for her. Uh, So where does Rizan fit into the story? Well, we know that he's going to be with her one month out of every I mean, I'm sorry, one week out of every month at his choosing. So we're going to see where that goes. And I feel like um, perhaps he might be a better fit, especially since he's in this night realm and that's kind of where she might belong. I don't know. I have my predictions. So, yeah, we'll see. So I just want to be fair and say that I was never a fan of Tamlin, even the first time I read this. I just never liked him. If this book, if the last quarter or third or whatever it is of this book didn't exist, I would never have continued reading. I never would have reread this book. I wouldn't have liked it. But the last part of this book and when we start meeting these new characters and learning more about the world and stuff like that, that's I, I just I don't find Tamlin all that interesting. And I agree with you that he the entire time that she's under the mountain, he won't even look at her. 
He won't make any expression towards her or anything. And Lucian tries to defend him saying, you know, oh, he's just trying to remain stoic so that, you know, Amarantha can't tell what, you know, form of torture affects him the most. I think it's BS. Maybe at certain times that might be accurate, but not the whole time. And he's just very cold, cold hearted, heart of stone. <laughs> um, and I just didn't like it. And then the one opportunity, I'm so glad you brought this up, but the one opportunity that he has to kind of break away where nobody is even paying attention to the two of them instead of being like hey you know like let's talk they barely yeah, even you, took that you you risked your life for me coming yeah. down here let me thank you Nothing. yeah or any literally anything other than i'm just gonna basically try to f you you know what i mean that's essentially what happens they barely even talk he brings her into like a i i don't know what kind of room it Pushes is her in, against the wall yeah in my head i just assume it's a broom it's closet even though i know it's not but yeah, yeah and a sense of like a courtyard okay i, I was picturing a broom All closet right. it's the room for requirement um <laughs> but either way it was just it was so off-putting to me i hated everything about it and i i just i never really liked tamlin from from the start so yes i agree he's a tampon but i i always thought that <laughs> anyway it was I mean, it was so funny too because uh, she told me she was like don't look at the post i just made and then i forgot later on i was looking around and i was like oh new post and i seen that and it was so hilarious because i was looking in the comments because i was like what tampon what did he do and then i looked in the comments and somebody was like not tampon and i was dead I felt, I, I felt so bad because I posted it and then I forgot. I was like, shit, Jess might see this. She's probably going to see this. So I was like, I got to text her and just make sure she knows not to look at it. And she did anyway, because later Sorry. on, later on, she was like, I like Tamlin, but I don't know if I should because you called him tampon. I was like, I'm sorry. Of course I liked him. I thought he was the beast. I liked the beast. Yeah. You know, he wasn't really a beast, but I have a feeling that Tamlin might actually be a beast. I don't know. <laughs> We'll see. Well, anyway, so getting back to Resands, I do, I do. No, no, you're fine. I do love Resands' character. Um, I agree with you. I think he's very interesting. I like that he is this kind of gray character where we don't know really if he's good or bad. We do see him helping Feyre. We've also seen him be kind of cruel and creepy. You know, he does. So he he does tell her that it's customary in his court to mark bargains with i know that i got a cat situation again um <laughs> but to mark bargains on the flesh with tattoos so he like he puts this tattoo on her arm where everybody can see it there's like a giant eye in the middle of her palm and there seems to be some type of connection as a result of that bargain through the tattoo and i liked that he was able to help her in the second task using that because otherwise i like you said uh she would be dead if he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of him helping, he does really help her at multiple points throughout her time under the mountain. So after she's injured from fighting the Middengard worm, um, he comes and he, he fixes her arm. That's when he makes the bargain with her. When she has to do these impossible tasks, she's sent to his bedroom to pick lentils out of the fireplace or something along those lines. And impossible she's never ending. Task. Yeah, and it's never ending. And then he comes in, he's like, what are you doing? And she explains it to him. And he's just like, that's so stupid. And then he, yeah, he tells the guards, you know, she won't be doing this anymore, you know, stop it. And then in exchange, 
she has to go with him to all these parties every night. He does give her the wine so she doesn't remember anything. He paints her body so that if anybody touches her, she'll know. And, you know, and all Tamlin does is try to make out with her. And I think it would have gone further than that. It was like his last, like, I think Tamlin believed he, she was going to die. Whereas it seemed apparent that Resand thought that she was going to survive. And A, he makes the bargain with her saying, like you said, for one week every month for the rest of your life, you're going to come to the night court with me. And he tells that to Amarantha. And Amarantha, even when she tells him that, gets kind of like stiff. And she knows because he's saying for the rest of her life, suggesting that it's going to be for quite a while and not just until the end of these tasks where he wouldn't be able to take her to the night court anyway. So I think he makes his his um, intentions kind of clear in that way that he does want her to survive. His reasoning for that is a little unclear, um, but he certainly wants Prithian to be free. So it would make sense. He also, like you said, bets on her. He's the only one. Amarantha seems upset about that. It is implied heavily that he is literally her whore, where he is essentially raped by her um, consistently. And I agree with you that it appears that he's trying to do what he can for his own people, just as much as Feyre is trying to do what she can for the people of Prithian. I really loved that at the end, as she is being killed by Amarantha, he's the only one that tries to fight Amarantha. And he is, mm -hmm. she eventually, you know, overpowers him, but he's the only one that attempts to fight. If Tamlin doesn't do that either, Tamlin doesn't even try to fight at the end. He's the worst. He doesn't even try to intervene. He never comes to herself to say, you okay? Yeah. Uh, oh, you're hurt. Let me try to help you. And I think it's ironic that you know, he's just he's depicted as this dark character, like he's like got these wings and he's from the night court, but he's more colorful than all the colors of Tamlin because he's more of an interesting character to read. I, I think he's he's so exciting to read um, yeah. more than Tamlin. So I think that that tells you something as well. Yeah. Uh, but Earlier, yeah, at, at every turn, he helps her, whereas at every turn, Tamlin does absolutely nothing to assist her. And that's telling. Yeah. And even at the very end of the novel, she asks him why he helped her at the end. And he says, you know, because when the tales are written, I want people to know that I, I fought at the end, that I tried to fight against her. What the hell did Tamlin do? Also, right. you had made a point earlier that you feel like Tamlin maybe really is a beast. And I thought it was interesting. So when Feyre is in Rhysand's room with the whole lentil situation, um, they're talking about things. She's asking him questions and she's talking about the shape shifting. And that is one of Tamlin's powers. However, we learned that all of the high Lords have the ability to shape shift. And he gives her an example where he, he kind of turns into a half beast where he has talons. He has these wings and these talons on his hands and feet. And he tells her that he doesn't like to succumb fully to his baser side like Tamlin. And I think that, maybe suggest something about Tamlin's character as well, that he almost prefers this more beastly side of himself. Maybe he feels more free in that form, whereas Tamlin does not, I mean, I'm sorry, where Rhysand does not. So I thought that that was an interesting contrast. And I liked that you brought that up because that's, it immediately sparked that memory in my brain about that scene. Um, so before we move on to the next question, I just wanted to say, I disagree with you that he's a tampon. I don't know why he's being called that, but I want to tell you why I disagree. Okay. okay. On a logical standpoint, oh, and I'm sorry okay. to be gross. 
But tampons help women and they help stop bleeding. Okay. And Tamlin does nothing to help her. Okay. When she needs him the most and does not stop her bleeding. Rizan does. So in a way, Rizan's a good tampon. I don't know. I'm just trying to help myself. Of the tampon thing, but um, sorry, I, this is probably the the one uh, podcast that says tampon the word tampon the most. Uh, so we're not trying to win like an award on that, and I'm sorry to keep saying it because I know it's gross for some of you. I'll move on. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, anyway. After completing the final task, as we said, Amarantha does not immediately free Tamlin and the fairies of Prithian. She's not true to her word. She says only solving the riddle would have uh, resulted in an instantaneous freedom for them all. She brutally and slowly kills Farah as a result. But just before Farah dies, she does solve the riddle. The curse is broken. And then Farah is actually transported into Rizan's mind. And watches as Tamlin kills Amarantha. And as all seven of the High Lords bring her back to life, ultimately transforming, and we're talking about Farah here, not Amarantha, brings Amarantha back to life, ultimately transforming her into a high fae. So she's no longer mortal. Now she's high fae. So what did you think, uh, Farah? Why do you think she went into the mind of Rezans, number one? Uh, what do you think of her transformation? Did you see this coming, this twist? Did it surprise you? And how did it make you feel in the moment while reading it? So I also love that this scene was so... Uh, I don't want to say epic. Yeah, it wasn't like fun to read because Farah's literally like every bone in her body is being broken at this point. So it was brutal. It's very brutal. And I also love that because the riddle says, you know, when I kill, I do it slow. She's being killed extremely slowly as well. And this is kind of what sparks everything in her brain. She eventually says, oh, it's love. And then she dies. Um, I. I thought that she was going to be brought back to life because I was like, I mean, I don't think she's just going to die. I know I already knew at this point that there was a sequel. So I was like, I mean, unless they're just going to change in, like a, to a different character, it'd be weird if she just died. I didn't really think about the high fae. I was like, that's pretty cool. It made sense because like we talked about earlier, if she really was you know, in love with Tamlin, what is she going to live and die and grow old? And then he's just going to stay young and beautiful and live on forever. <laughs> so it made sense that she was turned into a high fae. I wasn't really shocked by it, but I, I honestly don't remember what I thought when I first read it. So I can't really say if I was shocked or if I wasn't shocked or not. I don't remember feeling shocked, but I don't remember what I was thinking at the time, other than it makes sense that she would have to be made immortal in some regard. Um, why do you think Feyre went into the mind of Resand? So that's an excellent question, and I don't think I'm going to answer it. And what do I think of her transformation? I love that she was made into a high fae. I mean, yeah, I want my girl to be a fairy. She was destined for this life, I think. And I think we kind of see little breadcrumbs of that from SJM with her father and her sister saying, don't come back here. You don't belong here. You're you're better than this. You belong somewhere else. And how did I feel in the moment? I don't really remember, except that I, I do remember liking the the ending. I liked seeing how everything unfolded. I loved when Tamlin did kill Amarantha and he but once again, very beastly way, very brutal. He literally rips her throat out like an animal would rip uh, the throat of its prey. And it reminded me of what he did to Feyre earlier in the novel. Didn't like that. Also, it just seemed really gruesome. Also, I kind of would have liked to have seen her maybe die a little differently. Um, but I don't know. That's just, I don't really know how I just, when I read it, I remember feeling like, 
Really? He just like ripped out her throat. Ugh. And then I think he actually does stick a knife through her skull as well. But that's like after he's already destroyed her neck. So yeah. I was disappointed in this moment reading it because I wanted her to live and make it to the next book because I thought she was such an interesting character, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I was disappointed the way that that went down. And I was like, oh, she's dead. Meh. Because this was the best part of the book for me. So I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to go back to love, love, love. <laughs> uh, but I did see this coming that she was going to become fairy. There was a lot of uh, hints in the novel. You know, her sister Nestor in the beginning uh, makes pokes fun at her and calls her a half beast or something like that. Right. Yeah. So uh, I had a feeling I was like, oh, you know, she might undergo a change and she might transform, which would make sense because she was also hinting that she was mortal. He was uh, Tamlin was immortal. They obviously wouldn't be a good match. She goes through all of this and she tries to save him. It would only make sense that she would become, um, you know, one of their kind. So she could be and exist in this world. I've seen enough of these type of things or watched and read enough of these type of uh, fantasy things to know that this is possible. So I did have that in the back of my head that that might happen. I, it did not yeah. surprise me, but I did like it, even though I kind of saw it coming. I was like, all right, cool. You know, I really liked the way that they all came together and helped save this um, mm. woman and, you know, transform her into a high fae rather than just whatever, yeah. just because they she risked her life for them. So I really liked seeing that. Uh, I like the transformation. It makes more sense. You know, it's not just, you know, uh, a, a mortal and beasts. <laughs> it's yeah. a, It'll make more sense go, going forward. Uh, but yeah. I, I do not like the ending because I kind of want her to end up with Rezand at the moment. <laughs> but I know that she's going to see him. So I'm I'm satisfied with that. I felt satisfied, though, when the curse was broken mm-hmm. and uh, and that Amarantha died. It, did, it was satisfying at some point. And I will say this, this last thing, but uh, it's ironic that the High Lord of Spring was so silent this entire time. And then all of a sudden, quote, springs, you know, back mm-hmm. to life. When yeah. it's uh, a moment that he can to eradicate this uh, this threat to his yeah. realm. You know what I'm saying? Good thing that he did that. But at the same time, I think there's something more there to him. The way, like you said, he viciously does it. Mm. I'm mean, not that this uh, villain deserved any sympathy in any way. Mm. But mm, I didn't see it. I didn't see it as Tamlin was going to be the one to kill her. So I guess that part yeah. did surprise me. I thought it was going to be resand, especially because he was like the only one fighting. And then it was Tamlin. I was like, oh, now all of a sudden you want to, like you said, spring to action. Yeah. All of a sudden, no. Oh, High Lord of Spring is going to spring to life. Like how I, I don't know how convenient for you, bro. I don't know. <laughs> what else? <laughs> so why do you think that she went into the mind of resand rather than just basically go off into the afterlife? Uh, because they're connected. So after he did that thing where he saved her life by, you know, um, helping heal her arm, they have a connection. Clearly he's able to read her mind, but he has that mind's ability. Mm. Uh, I think that was a last resort for him to save her. Uh, so, you know, I think he wanted to save her. He pulled her mind into his and he was able to maybe save her life that way. He was Mm. trying to do whatever he could to help her live. And I think that, uh, it makes sense uh, that she went into his mind because she is connected to him through that eye that the one that uh, when she was trying to grab the levers, like I had said in the second trial, it kept telling her, no, 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 don't do that. Nope, nope. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is the right way. So I think that she has a connection to him and he was able to uh, maybe foreshadow it by doing that to her, that he would be able to uh, access her mind more easily. So he definitely did it to save her life. Yeah. 
Okay. I think. Yeah. It's a good theory. Thanks. All right. <laughs> yeah. So smug over there because you know more than me. And I'm like, what do you know, girl? I want the I answers. Know. Tell me all the things. I don't want to answer it because I do know the answer <laughs> and I don't want to spoil anything. But all right. Um, so Feyre does appear to struggle with increasing feelings of depression in the novel. At the end of the book, Reese tells Feyre, be glad of your human heart, Feyre. Pity those who feel nothing at all. Before saying goodbye, he appears shocked by something and then disappears. So what do you think of Feyre's emotional reaction to the events from Under the Mountain? And we also learned that after Amarantha dies, this eye ring, um, I guess I should explain this. Actually, I don't think we really explained it. So, um, so cool. yeah, so essentially the reason Amarantha is kind of in the position she is, is that she is a general for this King of Highburn from another fairy land and fairyland um <laughs> and she years ago 500 years ago there was a war between the mortals and the immortals the fairies and the humans and she was on the front lines fighting to enslave all of the humans jurian was a human who had kind of bewitched amarantha's sister in some way she was in love with him he kind of used her to get information and then betrayed her and so Amarantha then, of course, uh, went for Jurian. She they apparently decimated a battlefield together in their battle and she won. But she kept his spirit alive in keeping his eyeball in a ring that she wore around her finger and a finger bone that she wore on a necklace around her neck. So for 500 years, Jurian has been living in, as an eyeball and a, a finger <laughs> that she wears as jewelry. So, but at the end of the novel, we learn that the ring and the necklace have both gotten missing. So what, why do you think it was taken? Who do you think took it? And just in general, what are your predictions for the next novel? Well, obviously whoever took it is going to replace her in a sense, be the next villain perhaps, uh, because why would you want to take something that belonged to this villainous person? So obviously it's somebody out there that wants to either continue on her path, wants power for themselves or something, or somebody who really doesn't like this guy, Jurian. Poor guy. I mean, I know he he did some horrible things, but he can't die. He's got like a curse on him that he has to live as long as his parts are existing. And, you know, so maybe, maybe somebody uh, had mercy on him and took these things to destroy them. I doubt it. <laughs> I think there's going to be something that's going to come back. And there's a reason why that was mentioned and the cliffhanger came from that. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm excited for the predictions for the next novel. I think that something's going to come up out of that. And I think it's uh, it's going to be good. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know what. Uh, as far as they be, you know, be glad of your human heart and pity those who feel nothing at all. I, I have a feeling maybe this has something to do with Tamlin because he doesn't like Tamlin. And he knows Tamlin wasn't doing anything to help her. And he was helping her. So, you know, it goes back to Tamlin having a stone heart. So I think that's going to come into play in the next one. Like, why does everybody think he has a stone heart? Why did he literally have a stone heart? Was it just because of the curse or is there something more there? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we do see that because he does nothing to help her. So I think there's going to be something that that laid the groundwork for in the next book. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as what he sees before he leaves Rizan, something that shocks him. I don't know. I don't know. Something perhaps in his, in his realm. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'd like to know. <laughs> I, yeah. just, I don't. I don't even know. I don't even have a theory on this. Uh, I think okay. it's a good. I think it's, it was exciting and something interesting to come, but I'm not sure yet. So. Another little cliffhanger in and of itself. 
there were yes. like a couple of them yeah um so I'll I'll start with that with the be glad of your human heart first of all I love this quote I think it's a nice quote I think that he's basically I I agree with you when I first read this I definitely was like this is definitely about Tamlin I also think that he's just explaining to her that as long as you're feeling something you're alive and that's a good thing you know you you want to be alive you want to have your humanity people who don't feel anything have a tendency to just not care about other people and things like that so i think it was also like a word of advice for her in that regard i think he does have that connection to her through this tattoo bond so he might be able to feel her emotions they do suggest that in the novel at some point where she kind of gets a flicker of his emotions and vice versa so he might have been maybe picking up on this feeling of depression and uh the aftermath uh for for favor what's going on through her brain I really like the way SJM handles um, depression and 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 everything in her novels. I think we see a little bit of it in this book. I think we see in the beginning, Vera does live kind of like a depressing life. She kind of basically is only living to survive and to protect and support her family. And she needs that purpose to keep going. And now she's just had this extremely traumatic experience she feels like her soul has been damned and i think it would make sense that she's sitting in this cell night after night with nothing to think about um but her pending doom and then when she finally gets to the end she has to do that and everybody's celebrating her as this great victor this curse breaker somebody who freed them and she's sitting there like but I had to kill people and I'm a horrible person. So I I really like the way that SJM handles all of this and it continues on in the following books as well. So I, I liked seeing that thrown in here. I'm not going to answer the questions about Jurian because I know the answers and it would feel, oh. um, yeah. At the time I read it, I didn't have any theories about it. I was like, what's going on? So that's how I felt at the time. And now that I do know, I, I don't want to speculate. When I say certain things about Rizan, you kind of smile and give yourself away. So I think that I know why your second, the second book is your favorite. And I think you have a little soft spot for him. So I we're going to see. I love Rizan. I do. <laughs> I liked him when I first read this book. He, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, like he helps you, her. He I think really does. Yeah. And he's just much more interesting, in my opinion, than Tamlin. I really like great characters. Um, in this book, you know, we have Tamlin, who's supposed to be this great guy, and then Resand, who's supposed to be this evil guy, but we see moments of good in him. And so I really, that makes me curious about a character more so than somebody that's just good. So yeah, I'm, I'm always going to want to read about that character. <laughs> I agree. That goes back to my, um, my theory, too, about uh, the bird being uh, a symbol of hope. Because he does have wings. I'm not sure if he's a bird, but he he does have wings and he does have talons. Yeah. Uh, so he's a bird-like creature in some way. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps, you know, there's hope for him uh, mm-hmm. redemption-wise in the world because they look at him as he was somebody who was assisting this character. And perhaps he's not bad after all. So mm-hmm. interesting. I'm very yeah. interested to see where that goes. So by the end of the book, Farrah knows that she will get to live the rest of her life with Tamlin as she wanted. Uh, but with the occasional visit to Rizan as a part of the deal for him using his dark power to save her. So does this have, does it feel like a happy ending? Um, Does she do the right thing in accepting his help? Yeah, she had no choice. If she hadn't accepted his help, she would have died. Um, So even though Lucian claims that he would have come to to help her, 
There's no saying when he would have been able to do that. He had been whipped to the point where he couldn't move for several days. So she may have died before he ever even got the chance to try to save her. So she did the right thing. She needed to accept his help. Does it feel like a happy ending? I I think the end of the novel is framed as a happy ending, but I think we see the beginnings of Feyre starting to crumble emotionally. So I do feel it's a little bittersweet in that respect. But I think overall, we we end this novel with the feeling of hope, actually, for the future, for, for all of the characters. You know, they're all free now. So it's just a matter of where that freedom will take them in as the series goes on. Yeah. She says something at some point. Uh, she asks Rezans after it's all said and done before he leaves. You know, why did you make that bargain with me? You could have said every day and I would have been at your mercy to mm-hmm. save my life. I would have, you know, made any bargain with you. Um, and he makes it like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I feel like uh, he does. I don't know if it's feelings for her, but there is something about her that um, he's interested in. And obviously he made the choice to make it easier on her rather being like, I'm taking you every day away from Tamlin because she knows he she's there to save Tamlin. She loves Tamlin. Um, so I think that, you know, he's he made a bargain that um, would be correct <laughs> yeah. uh, going forward not seem too overbearing or take her from her love. Mm. Do I feel like it's a happy ending? Uh, Obviously she did the right thing in accepting the bargain. Um, It saved her life. Right. Uh, And then she was able to um, uh, release the curse and help everybody. So of course it doesn't feel like a happy ending though. because She's going home with Tamlin and I feel like something's going to go down and I feel like she's not where she's meant to be. It does seem like a happy ending that she's in the body. Maybe she was meant to be in. Um, I feel like yes and no. Right. I feel like there are happy aspects, but I feel like it's not uh, tied up with a bow. Happy ending. Mm. You know, Lily's marrying Atlas. I feel like it's (laughs) I feel like there's multiple layers and it's not necessarily, you know, a happy ending, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. All right. So as far as love interests go, you have Tamlin, a high lord who transforms into a beast like creature. And you have Rhysand, also a high lord of the feared night court who seems enmeshed in a dark web of politics. By the end of the novel, did you find yourself on team Rhysand or team Tamlin? I mean, who wouldn't be on the side of of Rhysand at this point? He's the reason she's alive. He's the reason she made it through. Tamlin did nothing. You know, you lose. You, you did nothing um, to go back to Willy Wonka. But like, but like, really, he just, you know, he did nothing at all. I mean, any opportunity he had to help her, he didn't. And he actually tried to almost harm her in a way um, by making her almost get killed, you know, because he did some foolish accent, actions, not using his, his brain. Um, Rezand was the reason why she was alive. So at the end, I have to be team Rezand. I know that he's got, he's from a night court darkness you know a lot of elements that might make him sound like he's not good uh and he is enmeshed in a dark web of politics he was you know considered uh amarantha's bitch and he was she was doing doing her dirty work um but i think again that he has a lot of layers and that there's a reason why obviously he was trying to save his people and i think he was a victim as well i don't think he was an enemy i think he was a victim just like she was in that situation but in a different way mm-hmm. um and i think this beast creature Tamlin uh I think that he showed who his true colors are I know she's attracted to colors but his true colors aren't really attractive because he did nothing to help her he just sat there and took it and did nothing and she risked her life for him so I feel like that it's going to cause a lot of conflict and friction in the next book Mm. 
Okay. Uh, team Reese and so yeah. I'm also Team Reese. I obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I already made that clear. I'm just not a fan <laughs> of Tamlin. I I do I do actually start to develop an appreciation for his character more as the series goes on. But in this book, I just wasn't, to me, Tamlin was so boring. That's part of why, even you said, like, when you were reading this, you were like, this is boring. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. what, what do you, she was like, why do you love this book? I was like, wait till the end. (laughs) Yeah. She was Um, right about that. Because I would have DNF'd it if I didn't know the end was going to be good. She was like, I promise. I was like, okay. Yeah. But, All right. Um, what do you think of uh, Sarah J. Moss's writing style overall? I like her writing style overall. I think she does do a good job of of world building. I think she does a really good job with the characters. I think sometimes she overuses phrases. Um, I didn't see it, honestly, as much in this book as we do see it in the next few books. But I think you still see it. I just saw you shaking your head. You still yeah, see it says- here. She says something like spider walked down your spine about 30 times in this book. Something yeah. Like that. There's going to be other things too, like that. It's just, it, it's not horrible. It doesn't like take me out of the book. It's just one of those things where I'm like, I mean, just say it a different way a few times, you know, <laughs> like, why do we have to say it the same way every time? It kind of just gets a little repetitive and annoying. But aside from that, I think overall, she's a good storyteller and I, I like her writing overall. I mean, this is my first introduction, my first book I've ever read by her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am definitely intrigued by her storytelling like you said and I definitely want to read more of her series and I want to read the rest of this series so that gives me a good idea that uh her writing style is appealing to me Mm. um there were some things I noticed like you said and some things drug a little bit on too long but I get the reasons for them uh and I think that I like her writing style (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) I'd like to see more of it so we'll see by the time you get to Crescent City, especially like her writing, I think in that book is really like you can tell she's been writing for a while. Throne of Glass was her first book. I think her writing is the weakest there. But okay. yeah, but I think you can kind of see her getting better with each book. So and she was young, too. So yeah. What are your thoughts on the title, A Court of Thorns and Roses? I think it's Beauty and the Beast. Um <laughs> Thorns represent the beast yeah. and roses represent all oh, the last petal falls and he's going to be a beast forever. <laughs> you know, break the curse. I, I yeah. you know, I think it's a play on beauty and the beast with the rose and the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and a court of, you know, they live in different courts, different seasons. So I think it's just a play on what to expect from the book. Mm. Yeah. I agree with you like, on every point that you made. I think it's a, uh like a way of saying it's beauty and the beasts, you know, it's the roses and the thorns. And yeah, but at the same time, it's also kind of describing the spring court where she'll be for the, you know, majority of this book. It's a court of beautiful flowers, but there's also some scary shit thrown in. So <laughs> thorns and yeah, roses. <laughs> roses are beautiful, but beware of the thorns, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what do you think of the cover art? Did it fit with the content of the book? I don't love the cover art. So I've seen uh, basic. Yeah, there's a different version of the cover now than the copy that I had originally. At first, it was similar. It was the same color, but it was like half of a woman's profile. And I assume it's supposed to be Feyre, but she's dressed in this like black outfit. I'll see if I can show you a picture, but it's like, and it has, it almost looks like a type of armor. I just didn't like it. I thought it was ugly. And let me see if I could pull up a picture real quick. I do like the new covers better. This is it. This is the one you had? Yeah. 
Oh, I kind of like mine better, but I also don't love it. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. It's like, I don't really like either cover, to be honest. They both make sense. The first one, it's showing what I believe is Feyre, and you can see the tattoo on her hand. And But I just don't get why she's dressed all in black, and it seems more formidable than she really is in this book and the whole thing with the tattoo doesn't happen until the end to kind of give stuff away in my opinion um well just the fact like if if you hadn't read it yet you have no idea that she's going to get this tattoo and you might be thinking like what is that all about you know who's this badass girl i don't know it was just weird to me the new cover is a wolf i think with an arrow in it but it's like yeah it's kind of like um abstract looking I, don't I, know. Think I, it's, I think it's, it's ugly. more minimalistic. I think it's ugly too, but it's minimalistic because I'm also holding up the next book in the series and it's also an animal. So mm-hmm. I feel like this just tells you exactly the book's whole premise is based off of killing a wolf. Mm-hmm. And this one, since this should be fun because I'm holding a court of mist and fury, the next installment. And just to give you an idea on this one, there's actually a bird like creature, <laughs> Rizan. Uh, a bird-like creature on the cover holding a ring and that's interesting because it doesn't have an eye on it but a ring was stolen with an eye on it in the last Mm. one so perhaps that has something to do with it Mm. so i think it's a little telling to give some predictions Mm. uh, but i think it's a little basic i think it could have been a little yeah it definitely fits with the content of the book i i just agree i think it's basic and just overall i i don't think it's very appealing to the eye (laughs) it's oogla um (laughs) not the best (laughs) all right so would you skip a scoop or skip how many golden scoops did you like it would you recommend it what's your rating all right i'm gonna give this one um please don't come at me but i'm gonna give it a three uh i i loved the ending and that's what saves it for me here but uh it was a little redundant it was a little filler-ish in the beginning and I didn't love it until the end um and the end definitely made me want to read on but it didn't end on a cliffhanger maybe some little breadcrumb type cliffhangers but not like a cliff cliffhanger uh you know it ended off where it's like she's going back to Tamnin and I'm just like ugh really after he didn't help you like so I'm interested to see what happens in the next book uh and I want to read more but there's some things that couldn't make me give it a higher score I toyed with the idea of giving it a 3.5 maybe a 4 but I wouldn't want to read this book again. So I can't really give it that high. I do want to read future books and I'm pretty sure I'm going to like them more because I think they're going to be a little more, more interesting and entertaining and exciting. Mm-hmm. So I would uh, I would scoop it either way though. I would recommend somebody read it obviously because it's the first part in a series and it's necessary to continue the series. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah. Okay. I would also scoop it. I definitely... If you find yourself having difficulty getting through the first part of the book, just know that the end is the best part. It's really worth it, in my opinion, and it's worth it for the rest of the series. I also rated this a three. Um, when All I right. yeah, when we I first got the same score again, that's I twice. Know, I know. Yeah, when I first read it, I rated it a three, and I have reread it multiple times, and I still consider it a three. Most of the book I don't like. Uh, it's not that I hate it. I like the characters. I do like Feyre. I love Nesta. I like Lucian. I like learning about the world and the different courts. And I thought that the imagery was nice. I just think that the romantic plot is boring. And it it is very, very true to Beauty and the Beast. So yes. while it is a retelling, it's it doesn't really change much about the initial story until we start veering away from that plot line altogether. So there wasn't really anything unpredictable about it. 
I, you know, it, it's just blah for that first big chunk of the book. But then once we hit the end, I love it. I'm on board. So, yeah. I mean, at least Beauty and the Beast has uh, Gaston. You got some friction there. This yeah. is just like love, 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 love painting. And I'm like, all right, where are we going here? But like Alex yeah. said, I, I did like the characters. I did. Yeah. And I, there I is do... a, re- a reason to, to read on. Yeah. And I do understand. I mean, I do like the character development and I do think we need to see a lot of this for the future, the the rest of the series to better understand the characters and their motivations and to let things unfold in what appears, you know, or feels more natural. Honestly, sometimes I'll reread this because I want to read the rest of the series and I will literally only read the last part of the book and maybe a couple of other parts thrown in there uh, with Reese. Yeah, I, I agree. I if I had to reread this again, I would only read the last part. And I think it's telling um about this because you were like, Oh, you're reading Akatar, I'm gonna read the series with you. And then you were like at the last minute, you're like, I'm not gonna read the first I one st- again, but I'll read the second one. I, was like, <laughs> I started. Okay. I started and I was like, oh, I just can't because I because there's nothing like really exciting that happens that you're like, oh, I can't wait to reread this. I did skim through the first part and I did reread the last part again. Yeah. But I was like, I'm not rereading this whole book again. Yeah. I'm not I mean, doing if, it. <laughs> if you want to read the series, but you don't want to dive, you could skim through like the the middle parts. You know what I mean? There's some exciting things here and there scattered, but overall, just watch Beauty and the Beast. And then this has a different ending. That's all. It did feel like a different uh, book entirely, the last portion. Yeah. To me. In a better way, too. Yes. I mean, I, if you're looking for just the romantic aspect, you might like the love story between favorite and tamlin a lot of people do it just wasn't for me i just wasn't a huge fan of tamlin's character it just like i said it just wasn't for me i I, i've read better beauty and the beast retellings and i've read better romance where it actually keeps me engaged and i want to read about it you know what i mean where there's friction or there's something going on that like lures me in like Mm -hmm. you said tamlin is just like kind of like a dry dull guy like once you take his mask off really now he's really gonna suck I don't know. I just feel like there's something more I don't know. So I, I'm really being mean to him. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He did, well, he did nothing to help my girl Farah. He's out. I know. As far as I'm concerned. Well, there you have it. But, yep. I am looking forward to rereading the second book. I hope you're looking forward to reading it too. Yes. I can't one. wait to read it. <laughs> looking forward to it for sure. And uh, we will see you next month with the second book. Hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Yep. Thank you. Okay. So we have a big week planned for you guys. So we have today's bonus episode tomorrow, September 26th. We'll be reviewing The Housemaid by Frieda McFadden. So join us then for our thoughts on the popular thriller and join us again on Wednesday for our bonus book of the month episode, which will be Pretty Girls. And Thursday, September 28th for another punny episode. If you haven't read the upcoming books, but would like to, head on over to the link in our bio and get a copy for yourself so that you can participate in our discussions. Listen, you don't pay anything extra, but if you make a purchase using our link, we get a small commission. So thank you for supporting us. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, it would mean a lot to us if you would leave a positive review on Spotify, Apple, or the streaming service you use. We would really appreciate if you would spread the word by telling friends and family and other book lovers you know about the podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners. We also want to remind everyone to be on the lookout for our live events on TikTok. We're planning to do some live events soon and we'll post upcoming dates on our socials. 
If you're just tuning in, this is what you can expect from our podcast. We're going to be releasing new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. So be sure to check out our socials for updates and also some bonus content. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms. Click on the link in our bio for access to all of our socials, our website, and other links. We encourage you to reach out to us with thoughts, ideas, questions, and feedback. You can email us at bookswithcooks at gmail.com. You can also find our full book reviews on Goodreads. These links will also be available at the link in bio. If no one told you today, you're important and valued. You belong here. You're doing great. And we believe in you. Now let's turn the page and put a fork in it because we're done with this one. Mm -hmm.